It's a marvelous night for a moon dance With the stars up above in your eyes A fantabulous night to make romance Need the cover of October skies You know the leaves on the trees are falling To the sound of the breezes that blow And I'm trying to please to the calling Of your heartstrings that play soft and low Yet all the night's magic Seem to whisper and hush Yet all the soft moonlight Seems to shine in your blush Can I just have one more moon dance with you? My love Wednesday, April 21st, and you are listening to the 39th episode of the Combing the Stacks podcast, or CTS if you're one of the cool kids. Whether you're a first-timer, long-timer, or a filthy casual, we'd like to welcome you to the warm confines of the show. I'm your host and the governor of the estate, New Jersey's favorite son, John. And this week, unfortunately, guys, while you had the dynamic duo of discourse, I did not write you fancy intros, so I'm just going to simply introduce you one at a time and let you guys show your peacock feathers to the world so matt say hi hello baby (laughs) wasn't that a isn't that a van halen thing isn't that a david lee roth thing i always remember that from the scene in Spaceballs where they enter the diner i I don't think that's that's a van halen Halen thing it's not well it's somebody's thing and now it's mine it sounded like Jerry Lee Lewis. It sounded like, like hello, baby, great balls of fire. Yeah. So, okay, and Josh, I'd like you to introduce, too, maybe as dynamically as Matt. Oh, man, I got to – I found a, a better nickname for me. I don't want to go by Ooh. whatever nickname you had last week. You can Jump in Josh Flash. It's a gas, gas, gas. You can start calling me Baby Driver. 
baby driver. <laughs> I'm going to go with that. You are now baby driver. And are you like it- a rapper? You're giving yourself a name? Like, <laughs> No, we need like, a, I think instead of our, you know, our first names, I think we need to go with like monikers on the show. So baby driver for Josh, I think we're going to just, for now on, whenever I'm talking to Josh in segment, I'm going to see if I could keep myself from laughing when I say, and baby driver, what do you think? <laughs> so... It'll be like David uh, David Caruso on CSI taking off his sunglasses. You can uh, call me Baby Driver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now Matt and I are going to need to come up with something equally as ludicrous for our names. So, well, speaking of equally ludicrous, guys, there is no essential question this week. So this is the first essential. time this season. I, I guess that, <laughs> essential. <laughs> Less than essential question in an essential episode. But we do have a little bit of cleaning the stacks, and we do have a brief Josh's movie corner. So you know what? Let's invert the structure a little bit. Let's have Josh go to his movie corner to start before we clean the stacks. That's why God made the movie. All right. I watched the Frank Zappa documentary Zappa, which came out last fall, fallish, I think, October, November time frame, and is directed by Alex Winter um, of Bill and Ted fame. Excellent. And, excellent. And it was a good, it was a good documentary. Um, I really appreciated the fact that they had a lot of old footage of him performing. Um, obviously he is dead. So the people that did talk in the documentary were, were his wife and some of the artists that he worked with, um, some of the regulars that, that performed with him for longer periods of time. He was very temperamental in terms of, uh, fitting his needs with you the don't artists with <laughs> <laughs> his, uh, with his, uh, sound. Um, I think it gave a good overall view of kind of his musical, uh, point of view and what he wanted to accomplish as an artist during his lifetime um, he very much saw himself as a composer um, first and foremost more so than kind of, you know not necessarily a rock musician but uh, which you know is attributed by the fact all the different types of music that he was involved in and made and and, and towards the end of his life when he was suffering from pros- prostate cancer you know he was um, he was having um, orchestras and ensembles perform his compote compositions and music so Mm. he really went down that way they had some a lot of good footage of of interviews that he was involved in on talk shows and kind of how that went badly there's some snl he was on snl um and Hmm. he did not like that (laughs) i know that's a pretty famous story actually yeah yeah wait um, was he he was a musical guest you mean well he was was a host too he was in Um, sketch oh wow yeah but they he feel like they didn't we're just kind of making fun of him more than anything. And um, so, yeah, it gives a good a good appreciation of the artist. If you're interested in Frank Zappa, you will definitely be interested in the documentary. I don't know how much it's going to make somebody who doesn't know Frank Zappa, like, gravitate towards him or um, make you want to explore his music. I mean, it just, mm. it's more than anything, it's a an interesting portrait of his life and what he accomplished. And um, it, it's definitely... I can tell Alex Winter was very into Zappa, and um, I think he did him justice overall. So it's a, it's a good recommend, you know, um, depending on on your thoughts on Zappa. Josh, how many uh, how many how many stars did you rate that film as? I think I gave it three out of five. Okay. Yes. Speaking and, of which, I started mm. the letterboxed page for all of the movies and 
inspiration and music that for the artists that we've talked about on the show and, and some upcoming, and I'll be adding more as, as I watch and as we, we talk about things. So check that out. I posted it on the Twitter account and, um, and then join letterbox and start logging your own movies as well. Did you say Josh, what did, is that on Netflix? Did you say, or what format is that movie on? The Zappa movie? Oh, Zappa. I got it from the library, but I think it's um, video on demand as well. Um, rental. Okay. And was Jimmy Carl Black, the Indian of, of the group, interviewed in that, in that film? <laughs> Good question. He was not in that um, oh, no. oh. thing. But there was some sweet footage of a young uh, Captain Beefheart. That was cool. Mm. Oh. So, Matt, knowing you long enough, when he mentioned Alex Winter... And he yep. mentioned, unfortunately, that Frank Zappa was dead. I've known you long enough that that's an opening for you to give a line from one of your favorite movies. Or so you can jump that into Napoleon that. Napoleon was a short dead dude. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> it's that little Bill and Ted look right there. So, um, yes. And so you have Josh's Letterbox account for all of your movie needs. You have the Spotify playlists that have been curated. Um, for the 60s, they're all in there, as well as we have most of uh, all the albums that we've covered in the 70s so far. Um, you can search for Combing the Stacks 60s playlists and 70s playlists, and you can find a variety of playlists there that feature two songs from every album we've covered, including bonus episodes. That, that reminds me, Superfan Kevin made a suggestion that we start creating our own playlists on Spotify that have nothing to do with the podcast. It's just like what music we are listening to. Uh, I have a absent. couple of those, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so, to answer I, super fan Kevin's question, I only listen to music for this podcast. <laughs> 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 so if you want to see what I'm watching, you can check out my letterbox page. <laughs> there you go. I, however, do have some modern music keys and I shout out some bands on our Twitter account. I will see if I can put together a list of stuff that, that I am listening to in the current modern music as well as just some <clears throat> other stuff on the fringes. Yeah. So, nice. and we also have a YouTube account. That YouTube account, you can search Combing the Stacks, and we link it every once in a while. Uh, It is segments from the show put up, and soon we will begin taping in person. So you can see see the Josh that Matt said he looks exactly like what he's supposed to look like. (laughs) And you can see the me that apparently... Matt said would take a while to be able to explain what I'm supposed to look like. And <laughs> you can also get an episode. It's a yeah. whole and, different episode. And as a bonus, you can also see Matt to see if he lines up with what it is. And I actually was talking to my sister the other day and she goes, I'm, in, I'm very intrigued to see what these guys look like. Cause I have an idea of what they look like. And it's funny. She described one of you extremely accurately and the other one of you not as accurately. So it's kind it's, of it's, funny. It's yeah. funny for all these years that we've known John, I've, mm-hmm. I don't even know what your mother, your father or your sister look like. And I'm not even sure they exist at this point i think that just like well, it's just i know, just made just, up like, having a mother and a father you totally like, did no i'm, I'm sure like the virgin the virgin like, the virgin mary birthed me at some point i, I bet <laughs> i bet you josh i bet you we've actually met them all but we didn't know it because I, they all I have like, met his parents before oh, i was gonna have. say josh has met them before so oh, this is okay. not a mystery to him but all right <laughs> yes i was just holding back the fact that i had a family <laughs> that was, that was my a, goal i want to do a segment where we try to guess what john's family looks like that would be the nice i also like how Matt doesn't know I have a family, despite the fact that we've often talked about my father's love of certain bands. And it's, yeah. I think John just just makes a bunch of stuff up just to keep things interesting. Yes. uh, I wouldn't put that past you, John. Uh, Well, while that could certainly be true, and I hold the artistic (laughs) license to do that, I think had mother and father is that one that uh, stretches the balance too much. Orphan boy. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so that is that is true. Although we're going to talk about Jim Morrison tonight, and Jim Morrison was famous for saying that his mother and father were dead when he was alive to kind of move that conversation mm. away. So wow. if you do want a slight tie right there, there's that. Uh, okay, with that lovely piece of information, <laughs> time for Outcast to segue us into cleaning the stacks. Okay, Matt, I've got something small, but I'll let you take the floor first um, so that you okay. can clean some stacks. Yeah, I have a couple of things. First of all, Josh, you were talking last week that Led Zeppelin, I believe in 1970 or 71, were making $100,000 per show that they played. Was that correct? Does that sound correct? Yes, yes, okay. in the U.S. apparently. There you, were U.S. tour dates. U.S. tour dates, $100,000. Do you know how much $100,000 is today? It's probably like $500,000. $682. <laughs> Whoa, Six, that's a lot. Yeah, over $682,000 for one like hour and a half long show. So, um, Well, they were doing like four-hour shows. So well, they were, okay, but all right, okay. That's a lot. Still, uh, I <laughs> still thought that lot. was the freaking <laughs> Four hours of, of work for $500,000. And the other thing I wanted to bring up was um, we were talking about the Plastic Ono Band, and I had forgotten to mention um, that the actual that it wasn't just the name of the album; it was also the name of the band, the okay. John Lennon and Yoko Ono's mm-hmm. band, the Plastic Ono Band. And even before they had recorded and released the John Lennon's debut album, they did perform a few live uh, a few uh, live performances. And um, they had a rotating cast of musicians, and I was going to talk about those last week, and I just forgot. Um, and they've also continued to play in recent years as well. So there's been a lot of people that have been part of the uh, Plastic Ono band, hmm. and that includes Ring- not only Ringo Starr and George Harrison, but Eric Clapton, Keith Moon, Billy Preston, uh, who played the keyboards for the Beatles and, and Let It Be, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, a gentleman by the name of Alan White. Um, John, do you know, does that name ring a bell to you at all? I feel like it should, but no. He, I'm... Alan White was the drummer from Yes from 1972 on. He replaced. Um, oh or, yes, or, okay. Yeah. So, um, so I thought that was an interesting tie-in from last week, um, as well as Timothy Leary, Alan Ginsberg, uh, Nicky Hopkins. We've talked about him well, before. For the first two, somebody had to grab the drugs. You know what I mean? And then I yeah, think Nikki that they Hopkins. did spoken word stuff or whatever, but it was Yoko's band too. So like I said, somebody that. had to grab the drugs. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And Nikki Hopkins, yeah, uh, CTS, close to first ballot Hall of Famer. Yeah. Uh, Delaney and Bonnie, who was the band that Eric Clapton <laughs> took from yeah. uh, D- Derek and the Dominoes. Uh, Frank Zappa. We were just talking about him. He played with them on stage once. And actually, there were, I think I talked about a legal matter where they played one of Zappa's songs and they decided to release it. Both John Lennon and Zappa would release it. And Lennon, when Lennon released it, he changed the title and gave himself and Yoko writing credit um, and totally Ooh. kept Zappa. <laughs> so, there, there um, is a, there's footage of that in the movie as well. Okay, yeah, Lennon I got Frank on stage. Yeah, Frank Zappa wasn't a big fan of, of that move. Um, I was going to say, didn't he yeah. not like the Beatles, period? I mean, that kind of was, remember that Sergeant yeah, Pepper, like, mock Yeah, up? it was yeah. all a spoof on them, and he called them sellouts. And uh, yeah. yeah, he was he, he was much more of a Monkeys fan, if uh, memory He was, yeah. yeah. He enjoyed being on the show, too, unlike SNL. <laughs> <laughs> and then in later years, the Plastic Ono Band was joined by such artists as Lenny Kravitz, Wayne Coyne, Questlove, and, of course, Sean Lennon. Do you want to explain who Wayne Coyne is for the maybe uninformed? Sure. He's the, mm-hmm. uh, he's the Flaming Lips dude. He's the main mm-hmm. guy in the Flaming Lips. Um, Questlove from, uh, from uh, The Roots, Roots. And Lenny mm-hmm. Kravitz from uh, uh, Lenny Kravitz. 
from, from pop culture fame in the 2000s <laughs> and radio-friendly hits of the 1990s. From uh, Dong slipping out of his uh, trousers, Lenny Kravitz, his leather trousers. You, ever, you guys ever hear that story? No, yeah. I, I don't think of him that way. But <laughs> He was wearing like tight leather pants or whatever to show and, and his, uh, yeah, his, his junk popped out on us on a, on a show once so we could maybe we talk about that we cover lenny kravitz and then take that ants? on twitter yeah <laughs> so. yeah we got video of that somewhere i'm sure yeah but uh lenny kravitz has also aged remarkably well dude is like ageless so i'll always give him credit for that it's incredible so i think nice. he's like 73 years old or something like that these <laughs> days but so I want to give a little bit of a shout out right here. Um, I always like to bring up some quality YouTube content that we come across on the page. And uh, we did get some YouTube comment uh, by a gentleman by the name of Michael S. who shared, and this is something I thought you guys would find interesting. He mm. shared that much of the base work that we talked about enjoying on Electric Ladyland in particular, but even on Axis Bold as Love, was done by Jimi Hendrix himself. Noel Redding was exasperated in Electric Ladyland, mm. and I actually did a little bit of research after this, and actually left for a lot of the recordings, and so he only played bass on four of the tracks on Electric Ladyland. It was Jimi Hendrix who played on uh, the rest of them, and a lot of the bass parts that we talked about loving so much that we might have overcredited to Noel Redding instead of Jimmy as well. So, um, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, they had a falling out, right? Wasn't Redding they was did. just getting pissed off at him. Yeah, and we talked all the, about... The, having all the people, like the random people on the street come in the studio to hang out during the recording. That, but also there was sort of like, I think the belief that he and, you know, Jimmy and Mitch Mitchell connected better and he felt left out. And remember, he couldn't put his own written songs on there. It was... Mm you know, the Jimi Hendrix songs, and he wanted more artistic freedom, and Hendrix was kind of like, eh, you know, and there was even some, um, and doing the research even further, it was it was pretty clear that he was, you know, the old thing that people used to say about Paul McCartney doing the drums for Ringo, but it really wasn't that big. He did it every once in a while, but not a lot. Like, in this case, it seemed like Jimi Hendrix did do it quite a bit to yeah. Noel Redding. So, yeah, so um, shout out there. It was... Uh, I went back, did some extra homework, and did see, yes, eight of the tracks were credited to Jimi Hendrix yeah. on the bass. He's a pretty good bass ones. player, too. He's a pretty damn good guitarist on any <laughs> anything with straight... Well, you remember, he. if you go back to that episode, I think it's a very interesting one to listen to. We did talk um, in an earlier episode. Actually, no, in that one, because Electric Ladyland uh, was when I kind of went into the expanded bio of Jimi Hendrix about how he learned to play the guitar, and he was basically playing like... A, a, like a ukulele and a banjo at one point to learn how to do it that he just was gifted by a woman at a yard sale um the story is in the electric Ladyland um episode mm. so yeah so thanks there um for giving us some context there and if you can feel free to drop us feedback on our twitter account at combing the we're pretty active on there posting stuff up and you know we'll we'll probably eventually do some other social when we you know decide to be part of the larger world of social media once you know we're doing all of these different things with josh's movies spotify youtube um trying to connect in as many ways possible that we don't want to come overly ambitious but there will be another social presence sooner or later so yeah all right guys well uh i'll i'm gonna be the first segment tonight but i'll let you guys introduce here in a second but i am um i'll you know what i'll lead in after you guys talk about it. so why don't you guys talk about your segments and then i'll dovetail into mine so josh you're gonna be going second what are you covering i'm covering the uh van morrison album moon age dance <laughs> nope <laughs> nope no oh dang it um no, moon, moon it's dance. just moon dance josh moon dance yeah 
Ben Did Morrison you, moon dance. Was that a joke or was that a malapropism right there? No, that was yeah, me not having it in front of me. And yeah. <laughs> moon, moon age <laughs> that, that, dance. That preparation that we're known for right there. Uh, yeah, the was, album. The, yeah. There's a Bowie song, right? Moon age daydream. So moon getting, age daydream. Yeah, oh, look at that. that he's, he's, Josh is looking ahead. No, no. no I Bowie. just thought that was off the head for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> and so, that, and that, I, yeah. I'm covering the uh, the final album of Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Water. So, yeah, you've done final albums in some things and debut albums, Matt. There's really, like, mm-hmm. no in-between is there, kind of, so. I, All right. but at some point, I'm sure I did. And, John, and what are you covering tonight? I'm to doing off? The Doors' L.A. Woman. So, you know, what better way to start us off than to talk about the songs that are at the beginning of the bumpers, right? Is that as good as it gets? So I actually yes. picked... L.A. Woman in the montage, which you've heard already. And, you know, I have to do Riders on the Storm in terms of the lead-in. So, Josh, pick something good. Riders on the Storm Riders on the Storm Into this house we're born Into this world we're thrown Like a dog without a bone All right. Well, you know what was really cool about that? This is, uh, by the way, this is going to be the fourth and final Doors album that we cover. It is their sixth studio album. We covered their first three during season one of the uh, Combing the Stacks podcast. Let's do a little trivia, guys, on the spot. Album number one. What was the name? The Doors. No. Yes, you got it. Oh, wait, no, I he- thought you meant the one that we covered. Album number well, one was the debut album of The Doors. The first one we covered was Waiting for the Sun. Okay, yeah, we're doing them in order of how they were released. So, yes, oh, The Doors well, was the third we covered, but it is their first album. Okay, what was their second album, if you guys remember? Oh, gosh, it's the we covered mm, it on Strange the Days. Episode, right? Yes, Matt nailed it. Strange Days. Do you guys remember the cover of Strange Days? Yeah, it was like a carnival. It's one of Josh's favorite uh, musical the, genres, yeah. the carnival yes, genre. Yes, I was going to say, Josh's favorite psychedelic carnival was the yeah. front. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was basically what Jim Morrison said he thought the world looked like when he went out with Strange Days. You mentioned number three, which was? That was Waiting for the Sun. Correct. Matt is killing it today. Waiting for the Sun. And then we did not cover albums four and five. Four was the not-so-well-received The Soft Parade uh, from mid-1969. And then uh, we actually didn't cover, and this one was actually much better regarded, Morrison Hotel from 1970. Yeah, Morrison Hotel was actually rated higher than Waiting for the Sun on Best Ever Albums, but Hmm. because it's in the 70s and the 70s was a better decade, we're not covering it. So, And Morrison um, Hotel is going to be an important one to know in the context of this because it's sometimes seen as a sister piece for L.A. Woman because it was sort of where they felt they first delved into a more blues approach and then L.A. Woman was sort of the outgrowth of that. So that's where we're at. One thing I also want to shout out is in doing my research this week, sometimes we get very lucky in terms of timing. And um, 
Ultimate Classic Rock Magazine, a place that I go to for a lot of times. They have a lot of found footage and articles from the time period and, you know, modern retrospectives. They actually did a song-by-song breakdown of L.A. Woman two days ago, uh, April 19th, 2021. It's called The Doors, L.A. Woman, the story behind each track. So while I use them for research anyway, there is, I mean, you couldn't find a more hot-off-the-presses article, so I'll give them a little bit of a shout-out. The writer's name is Rob Smith, uh, and it's a pretty comprehensive article, and I definitely pulled some stuff um, off of this. What was it on again? Ultimate Classic Rock. Ultimate is, classic it's, rock. it's actually a magazine, but they have a uh, a website as well that will release. Yeah, there's videos. no more magazines. It's all online. Yeah, but they they still release the magazines in the European market. It's like I remember when Josh worked at Barnes and Noble, right? And he was nice mm-hmm. enough to bring me the uh, the magazines, and I would just pour through them and get these random CDs that. Oh, the covers like... were always ripped off, weren't they, Josh? Didn't you yeah. have to give us? Yeah, there was like some yeah. sort of. Yeah, that's how you get them for free. There you go. That's all I do when they get rid of them. So if I rip off a cover of a magazine and Barnes and Noble, I could just walk out with it. That's okay. All right, it's good to know. Needless to say, I wrote, I read many things that when people say, "How did you find out that random stuff?" or know that a lot of them were from reading those magazines that Josh got me over the years, and there were CDs that were equal parts great and terrible, depending on what it Mm. was. I, I remember in particular there would be a lot of like artists cover somebody, and sometimes they'd be great, and sometimes they'd be horrendous, and everything in between. So. So, yeah, so shout out right. to them. John, you want some numbers on L.A. Woman before you I get would going love, into I'd love some freaking I, numbers, I knew Matt. you would. So mm-hmm. we got L.A. Woman coming in at number 47 in the 1970s. It was ranked number nine in 1971. 192 of all time. This is all from Best Ever Albums, and it did not make the Rolling Stone Top 500 list. Whoa. Hmm. Okay. Well, so I guess... I'm not going to do a super long bio because the Doors career from their first album to this album feels like it was like on a racetrack, just a, a drag race right forward. Right. And this represents the the final, you know, maybe 10 yards of the drag race, because unfortunately, three months after not even three months um close to three months after this album was released, Jim Morrison would be found dead in Paris in 1971 july 3rd of a heart attack at the age of 27 um and you know in previous episodes we kind of outlined the beginning of the doors how it happened and we often made note of the fact of you know morrison's behavior was escalating as we went on but we hadn't really gotten into the period where he turned into um the morrison who was full-blown alcoholic um put on the weight and stuff like that when we get to la woman he is you know, pretty deep in the throes of that Morrison. Um, He is living in California and he is on the precipice of moving to Paris uh, with his girlfriend and um, who, of course, they had a incredibly tumultuous relationship, to say the least. It is an artist relationship. Um, As a reminder of what was going on during this time, uh, the Jim Morrison, the concert in 1969 was charged with indecent exposure and profanity were the two charges. Um, the doors and Morrison always maintained that they did not think that he exposed himself and felt that he was convicted. Um, basically before anybody knew what it was because of the band's reputation. So uh, he but, didn't, he didn't pull a Lenny Kravitz. Well, we don't know because mm. the, some people say he did and others say he didn't, right? So it's kind of one of these, you know, doors lore. <laughs> but the band has always said that they did not believe that he did. Um, needless to say, um, he is um, convicted of those two offenses. Um, but 
really the the aftermath of that did not land him in jail and you know it was kind of a more of a probationary type deal that the thing was but the legal troubles really haunted him in this period of time and were kind of always in the front of what the band was doing so that is there Uh, a second thing that is going on during this time as i just mentioned is that jim morrison's behavior got even more erratic he pretty much became a full-fledged alcoholic um he was away from the band for long periods of time. Um, in fact, at the time that uh, he passed away, the rest of the Doors were in California um, putting together music and then basically waiting for Morrison to come back and add mm. you know, um, lyrics to the music and, and uh, things along those lines. So there's a whole bunch of tracks that would become the Doors album after this, the one they released without Morrison that were going to be the tracks that uh, Morrison was going to work on. So that is there. Um, Another thing that very much informs this album is that their longtime producer, Paul Rothschild, had actually left the project. Um, There's a lot of different stories. Rothschild's story to this is that what I'm about to tell you is he was trying to do it to motivate the band, but the band said they thought he was, you know, stone serious. And that is that... uh, they came into the studio and Rothschild was kind of like a taskmaster. And I think at one point, at one point, Ray Manzarek said it was like when he left, it was like the, you know, the warden was gone kind of. Mm -hmm. And he, um, he heard the first two songs that the doors made for this album. And it's important to know the doors kind of went in with no material for this album. And if you remember when we talked about their earlier albums, their first and second album was basically their lo- their live set, right? Right. Remember we right. said the best song? Yeah. And then the third, they went in with quite a bit of material um, because, you know, Morrison had notebooks and notebooks of lyrics, right? And then it was kind of just a matter of going in there and working out stuff. In this, they really didn't have much of anything. They plumbed a notebook of Morrison's from 1968, was where some of this came from lyrically. Um, but the Doors play Rothschild, Love Her Madly, and Riders on the Storm, and he referred to it famously as cocktail lounge music, and then mm-hmm. walked away from the project. He said with the idea of coming back. Um, but before he did, he recommended that um, Bruce Botnick take over. And Bruce Botnick took over as the um, co-producer of this album. Um, and at that point, the rest of the, um, the the recording of this album is fascinating. Um, Morrison is singing a lot of the lyrics into a microphone in the um, sort of the opening of a doorway near a bathroom is where it's going to go. Um, to, to be specific, um, <laughs> there's just a, there's a lot of stuff in terms of like how they recorded this album yeah. that is very interesting um but a couple things that that really uh, i think most people immediately recognize about this album and i'll be interested to hear your take on this this is considered to be the doors blues album it's Mm -hmm. a blues album it's a fully realized blues album that's apparent this is a concept album to to some extent they didn't go in looking at this as a concept album but they kind of all realized that this was a concept album about la in fact ray manzarek said it's about la it's about the men the women the boys the girls love lost lovers lost and lovers found in la was how he said he would describe this album and um in particular jim morrison it's looked at as both a love letter and a farewell note to la from him before he moves to paris and uh, the other thing that comes out of this is that this album is kind of considered to be the, the first Doors album that moved into what people think the sound would have shifted to. 
if the Doors mm. continued to play throughout mm. yeah. uh, the mid-70s. Uh, and so that is, it's also, with the exception of the first Doors album, it was pretty much the one that critics liked immediately. Um, you know, the other albums in between were kind of met with a mixed reception, depending on who was listening. But this one, critics sort of liked in the moment, even before Morrison passed away, right? They, they liked yeah. this pretty much out of the gate. So that is a little bit of the background. I've got a lot of other context, and I'll probably try to add it in here as we talk about it. But instead of going long on the bio, because we've done a lot of them, um, I'm interested to hear what, what your take is, because we've always kind of been uniform in our thoughts on the mm -hmm. doors up to this point. But I, I think we I'll be interested to see where you guys come. So, Matt, maybe let's have you start out. What are your thoughts on this album? So I think this might be my favorite Doors album that we've covered. Me too. Um, yeah, and it's add me as a third. So there yeah. we go. Mm -hmm. So it's it it's, the blues is definitely there. I was my initial reaction was being disappointed that Roadhouse Blues is not on this record. Mm -hmm. um, I guess that's yep. on Morrison album, Hotel. Morrison Hotel. Yep. Yeah. Um, so uh, I because that that that's one of my favorite door songs and I've always loved it. So I was a little little disappointed, but um, so I only knew you know, kind of the hits I, or the ones that were at least on the greatest hits album, which included Lover, Madly, L.A. Woman and Riders on the Storm. So most of this album was new to me, but I, I did find it, um, you know, su you know, surprisingly good, you know, or like, or consistent, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. I pretty much liked every out or every song on the album with the exception of Lamerica. That's the one that stood out as kind of the clunker for me. It's kind of, that's the one song I think that sounds a little bit more like older door stuff. They're kind of doing mm -hmm. the, a creepier kind of a song. Mm -hmm. um, there was another song that was similar to that sound. I thought on um, waiting for the sun at the name of it's escaping me at the moment, but I didn't really care for that one either, but I did like the blues aspect of this. I like Morrison's voice here, the like the kind of like the screaming blues Morrison voice, uh, much more um, than the droning. Mor you still have droning Morrison on here, you know, but it's not. But but I, that's not the prominent Morrison that I'm getting. But um, I've been down so long was a great blues song. That's a mm -hmm. great long. Been down so long. It seems there's some goddamn long it seems like up from here it's like that's a cool line you know yeah. i don't know you, you know that I, I really like that line um and um you know there's a couple of the long songs on here and i didn't realize this until this past week but i'm i'm pretty convinced after listening to this album that la woman is is cl my clear favorite doors song that 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 oh, is out of all of them out of all of them that's you know that i've always liked it but the more i listen to it i'm just I'm picking out parts. I really like the piano playing of Ray Manzarek, and I know I've talked about him before, but one of the things I like about his playing on this record is he takes out a lot of the effects, and it's more of a straight-up piano playing yeah. that he's doing. And, and that was last album. He moved over to the stand-up piano more than the Hammond organ. Yeah, yeah. And, I, mm -hmm. and I like that. And I, I like the Hammond organ. I mean, that's, that's a quintessential sound of the Doors, but as far as just overall an, an enjoyment of the record, you know, the piano playing that he's doing on here, it's almost like a saloon piano, you know, that you mm -hmm. walk into an old Western saloon or something and, and the piano's going, it's kind of got an echoey, you know, type sound. Um, but he's got that going on with like something like L.A. Woman, you know, Lover Madly that, you know, just... Um, you know, really cool. And, and he's got a, he's got more of a keyboard sound on Riders of the Storm, but it's, it's, I, I don't know. It seems a little bit more, it seems less dated, I guess, than some of the other stuff that he was doing in, in the earlier parts of the sixties. But, um, I, I like the first half better. Uh, I would say for sure. Um, I, I did like Hyacinth house that the more, the more it went on, you know, crawling King snake was good. The wasp. I, I liked all of those. The more I listened to them and writers of the storm, it is more of a droney, 
older sounding door song in that regard but i still think that's really good it's it's like it got a jazzy kind of instrumental uh part that's going on with uh you know with, with some of the sounds that they got going on there and i so I, I really liked it um you know the more i listen to it the more i like it the changeling's a great opening song yeah i i, I yeah really other than lamerica which i it was kind of annoying to me. I would end up skipping through that song uh, as the week went on. Uh, really thought this was a solid album, and it's too bad, obviously, for multiple reasons that Jim Morrison died, but one of them being that they couldn't have done more of this you know, in mm-hmm. latter years. Um, so uh, solid thumbs up for me on, on this record. Yes, I'm right in line with you. I was surprised right away how much uh, better this album was than the previous Doors albums and how much more I liked it. It's like they stripped away all of the things that I found annoying about um, or distracting about their sound from the previous albums. You know, the carnival sound, the overuse of the organ, they really reined that in. And like Matt said, switched to some different um, key instruments um, depending on the song. They, there's, you still get the you still get the essence of the doors here but it's in like a blues form which i really mm-hmm. which i really loved the um i i did not have a problem with la america like matt seemed to do i like the dark sounding start to it it's it it reminded me of black sabbath a little bit and kind of the spookiness of it you still get the morrison sounds different on this album too would you guys agree with that? He sounds a little rougher or maybe oh, yeah. reined yeah. in or I don't know, well, <laughs> he was, tarnished or something. Well, he was struggling with his booze, yeah. like the booze. He was struggling with his voice yeah. because of the booze. He, yeah, I, I mean, uh, pretty pretty much everybody mentions that this is a different Morris. Some people like it as like a wear, like it fits with the blues sound, mm-hmm. right? Wary. And you wonder if what, you know, crystalline early, you know, Sex yeah. God, Jim Morrison would sound like doing these songs, but yes, that's that is a key feature of this album that I was going to bring up. That his mm-hmm. voice sounds very different. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not saying that's good or bad, but it is. It is noticeable um, almost right away. Um, it would be interesting to hear a you know a younger Jim Morrison do do this album, but if it's if it's the theme and mood of the album, um, his his voice. So I didn't have a problem with it. Um, I thought this album in general is also kind of more upbeat and and a little bit more uh, like Love Her Madly, more pop oriented or, or rock oriented. Um, but you still have the you have the blues backbone throughout all of it. Um, I really like. You still get the funny lyrics like in Crawling King Snake, where he's just talking about being a snake and t- <laughs> eating other things and eating eating a woman and stuff like that and and then you you cap it off with writers on the storm which is probably one of their more famous songs i would say now but, do you know that crawling king snake was a cover of a john lee hooker song okay that makes sense mm-hmm. yep definitely um i thought la woman was a little long for my liking although oh, I, no. I, do, oh. <laughs> I do like the like the uh, song but it's got the different uh, one of the things i like about that is the different parts of it you know because and i think that they're all really good and when he kicks into the mr mojo rising and builds up with that i i it is a long song it's almost eight minutes but um it's one of those songs for me that that it's got enough things changing and i like all the different parts of it mm-hmm. that i it's it's totally fine being eight minutes long for me yeah. anyway yeah i think my favorite song probably is love her madly on this album mm. um it's just a great uh great like rock it's got a good got a great guitar riff that yeah and he sounds he sounds great on that too so yeah it's sad that 
we didn't get more Doors albums like this. I, I like the direction that they seem to be going in, um, but you can never, you can never uh, account for that um, tragedy. So, um, yeah, big big thumbs up for me. Definitely the the highlight of the Doors catalog that we listened to on this journey. And um, John, what did you think about this? Yeah, I really like this album. I think I mentioned in earlier episodes that I think the the Doors are at their best when they're a blues band. Yeah. I, I think I mentioned that exactly. And I said, later on, I'll be curious to see when I revisit. I thought we were going to revisit Morrison Hotel and L.A. Woman. But mm-hmm. I think I even at one point said, you know, the Doors album I always think is the one I like is L.A. Woman. And I was curious if I went back and, and liked this. And I was probably a little higher on the Doors albums than you guys were, which always surprised me because I didn't think of myself as a big Doors fan. But the Doors to me were kind of like... The, like the girl with the curl, right? When they're good, they're real good. But when they're bad, they're real bad, kind of. And what I like about this, Josh made a very prophetic comment, and I would agree with it. The Doors stripped out on this album a lot of the things that I didn't like about them and leaned into the things I did like about them. Uh, Morrison's lyrics, which I make fun of quite a bit, were actually quite a bit more in my opinion, witty and sophisticated in this album. They were poetic without sort of roaming into the absurd. Even a song... Um, even like the longer songs didn't sort of lend themselves to excess as much as I felt like they did on earlier albums. Um, so I like that right off the bat. As much as I love like, you know, throat tearing Jim Morrison going out, I don't think that would have worked very well on these songs. And I actually think the, you know, while it was probably not the best for him in terms of his lifestyle and how he was at that time health-wise, um, it lent itself. And I, I don't think I mentioned before, but another thing is that Morrison gained a, just an a astronomical amount of weight in a short period of time as well. So I would guess that that probably affected yeah. um, his voice too, making it a little bit more huskier, you know, and uh, even his mm-hmm. breath control and stuff like that. Um, so that's one thing that stood out. Um, something that I didn't mention before, but that I really want to mention here is that I never really think of the Doors as being a band with great bass parts, you know, from time to time they'd Mm -hmm. have it. But one thing that came out of this, which I think that was uh, really noticeable, is they brought in two session players on this album. And one of them was actually Elvis Presley's bassist. Um, And one of the things that I noticed before I did the reason, I think I've told you, I I always like to listen to albums before I do my research, so I'm not influenced by it. Then I do my research and I listen to it again. And I noticed the bass jumped out at me quite a bit as being better on this album. And yeah, and then doing my research, I found Elvis Presley's bassist Jerry Chef came in. And actually, a lot of the band made mention of the fact of how good it was to have him on the album. Because, you know, the Doors often played without a bassist in earlier albums. Mm-hmm. And um, Densmore sort of, uh, Densmore from the group categorized uh, Chef as an in-the-pocket man and said that his presence allowed him to communicate rhythmically with Morrison and he slowed Ray down when his right hand on the keyboards got too darn fast. And so they said that basically he kind of steadied everything and kind of gave them a more restrained feel. And the other thing that was big about it was that Morrison is was like a huge Elvis Presley fan. So he was stoked about having mm. Chef on the recording. And also he loves blues, Morrison. Uh, that like um, Howlin' Wolf type blues, John Lee Hooker, who we talked about before. And so Morrison actually was noticeable like during the recording of this. They said it was sort of the best version of him in the last couple of years of his life. He kind of came ready to go. Um, That's what happens when you bring a pro in. 
Yeah. Well, and it, uh, and it makes sense too that like you know that John Densmore would would really appreciate that as the the only real rhythm guy in the band. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. relying on a guy on a keyboard player to do rhythm, I'm sure he was trying to do that. But this is it's got to be a totally different ball game to have a bass player in there. You got it. And they actually brought in a rhythm guitarist at times too, Mark Benno as well, a session player, and he played mm -hmm. on some of the tracks. And so I thought that was really noticeable because I've always. The thing that always is missing for me with the Doors is that rhythm section because they don't really have a powerhouse drummer and the bass is absent at times. And in place of those two instruments, it's often that organ, which I love at times, but also can make them excessive at times. I, I like fall in between. I don't love it as much as Matt, but I don't hate it as much as Josh. It's all song specific for me. So that was another thing that I mentioned on this. Um, and I just really liked the craftsmanship of these songs. I actually think that the Doors sounded best as a band on this album, even more so than they did on the first album, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I thought they were... I never think of the Doors as a tight band, right? You know, really? But they were tighter on this album because they kind of had to be because they were playing streamlined blues. Mm -hmm. um, so it's funny to think of a blues band being tight, right? But like this is a version of the Doors that's tighter than the other version. So... All around like this album, I I really would have liked to have seen where they could have gone. But of course, the question is, were the Doors ever fated to be anything besides the Doors, right? With Morrison up front, because the same thing that kind of made them the Doors was the same thing that made them like a an enigma, you know, a fiery mm -hmm. enigma. Like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, what would Morrison be like if he outlived the youth? You know, yeah. hope I die before I get old. Like, what would... Can you even imagine what 35-year-old Jim Morrison would be like? It's almost hard to imagine that as sad as that is because so much of his legacy is baked into, you know, the fact that he did die young and the fact that during his life he was trying to outrun death, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, you, mentioned, you mentioned, John, that Crawling King Snake was a cover. How many other covers are on here or is it mostly originals? I believe that is the... Only that's the only one, one yeah yes oh, it's okay. the only one yeah mm -hmm. uh it fits nicely with the rest of the album yeah they recorded the three bluesiest songs on the last day i think uh, i'm trying to remember what jim morrison like called it like blues day or something i'm trying to remember exactly what he did but the last day was devoted to covering uh to doing the three songs that are the most bluesy um mm -hmm. and crawling king snake was one of them so um but yeah i i would say that even if you're not a huge doors fan this this would be where I'd direct you if you are aware of The Doors and you think of them as their earlier albums and that's not your cup of tea. I think this is the one that could turn your opinion. Um, I don't know how familiar you guys are with Morrison Hotel. I know it relatively well. Um, how f Have you guys listened? I mean, I know Matt Name Dropped Roadhouse Blues was the first track on it, but... Yeah, I, I, probably guys... just, I probably just know anything that was on that that was also on the Greatest Hits double album is the only thing that I really know. Gotcha. And Josh, have you ever heard it before? No, I haven't. Uh, I went back and revisited it this time, and it is a, it is very much a predecessor to this. You can see they're going in this direction on mm -hmm. that album. I would say it's my second favorite Doors album after this one. Um, and once again, it's way more blues-infused, um, and you can tell that they... Um, they had a little bit of a chip on their shoulder for the reaction to their fourth album, you know, and they wanted to kind of go back in and do it. Um, mm -hmm. Some people define this album as being inconsistent, which is unusual to me because I actually think this was the most consistent Doors album that we've listened to. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, like I said, I, I think for the most part, I, I would say that it took me longer to get into the second half of the record, particularly with 
um, Crawling King Snake and the Wasp. But like those took me a little bit longer to get into. Hyacinth oh, House. Yeah, I like those too. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I like them now, but I'm just saying that as opposed to the ones that I didn't know on the first side, like Bent Down So Long, Cars Hiss By My Window, and The Changeling, I, I, I liked almost immediately. Um, and it just took me a few lessons to get more into the other two. So, um, uh, yeah, but I... I, I like I said, the only thing that really stood out to me was Lamerica. Um, John, were you okay with the long songs on it with the Riders on the Storm and L.A. Woman? How are you uh, commenting on those? I really like L.A. Woman. I've always liked that song. Uh, like I said, I think it's because there's enough going on in there that I'm with it. Riders of the Storm. <laughs> let me let me put it in this context. I always feel like you're going to get a song on that on every Doors album, and as yeah. that type of song on every Doors album go, it's the least offensive to me <laughs> of the ones we've done. Okay. It's still not my favorite, but you're not going to get a Doors album that doesn't end with you know that type of it song. Is, that has seemed like the thing. Josh, did you like Riders on the Storm, or was that yeah. like a yeah. Yeah, I like that more than LA Woman for some reason. Oh wow, yeah. I yeah, I I I Maybe the more the I listen Yeah. <laughs> I just yeah, I loved LA Woman. John, who is uh who's Mr. Mojo, by the way? Like I always love that, that part. I'm like, what is that this? is Jim Morrison's uh name mixed up. Like an yeah. anarch like an, Like if you took it? Jim Morrison and rearranged the letters. And that's all Mr. Mr. Mojo, Mojo right oh, Okay. So if you look at the lyrics of the song, it makes a lot of sense <laughs> that Mr. Mojo, Mojo is Jim. Yeah. That Mr. Mojo is Jim Morrison. Actually, it's the first time I ever sing autobiographically. First, mm-hmm. first time I ever heard uh, uh, "L.A. Woman" was uh, Weird Al Yankovic had like a had like a medley <laughs> song, and he did an L, he did "L.A. Woman," and he had Mr. Mojo rising on there. So, uh, um, yeah. Well, but, you do, and we didn't even talk about this, but you can definitely see like that this album, Jim Morrison's writing lyrics about LA all over the place. And mm-hmm. there's autobiographical lyrics and that Mr. Mojo, like if, if you go back and listen to that song and you read it as like an autobiographical song, it totally makes sense. You know, it was, um, I, I think that like, uh, Mark Benno, the guest guitarist, right. And this is from the classic rock, um, article. He mentioned that like Morrison showed him the lyrics, which he like wrote in the, <laughs> this leather bound notebook <laughs> yeah like mm. i like leather bound books so <laughs> he said it was like this this yeah exactly and it, he said this leather bound notebook was like this you know gigantic phone book level thing it's got poems lyrics and drawings and stuff and he showed him the lyrics that became la woman and uh the krieger said that um while he never asked jim morrison what his lyrics meant because he never would have given him a straight answer. He thinks he's pretty confidently that L.A. Woman was actually half of it was him singing about L.A. and half of it that the woman that Jim Morrison was talking about was actually L.A. as a city. Okay. Mm-hmm. So and there's and he goes into a lot of detail of why he thinks that way, some of the imagery and stuff like that. But yes, mm-hmm. Matt, the Mr. Mojo is Jim Morrison mixed up into a different arrangement. Yep. And so. Josh, is that picture behind you? Is that the he's got Jim Morrison's mugshot? Is that after his indecent exposure? I don't know. Arrest. It's, uh, it could September be the New Haven. Could be the September New Haven. September twentieth, night. It says September twentieth, nineteen seventy. So that would be no. That was a that was a another arrest. A different one, I think. Yeah. He, I mean, he was having his challenges across the board. Um, the I believe though that was another. Um, hmm another arrest i'll clean that stack next week just in case it's a pretty good mugshot i gotta say he looks pretty good for, for i mean me. the dude was photogenic man yeah. there's a reason <laughs> the dude was like 
the dude was what he was, you know? He doesn't so. look very happy, though, Josh. He's not, I mean, not a happy. I'm not saying he should be happy. I'm just saying he looks, he looks does good. He, does he look smoldering? I know that's the word that most people Ooh. say. Yeah. Yes. I'm not... I would think so. Mm-hmm. He just has my, dark hair, too. Dark brown hair. My another beard. Another thing I'll, I'll end with is uh, that my favorite story about the trial um, of Jim Morrison, um, he went to his sentencing on October 30th, 19... Uh, 1970 in a wool jacket adorned with Indian designs was what he showed up in, which is Mm -hmm. like peak Jim Morrison. And for those that are wondering, he was sentenced to six months in prison and had to pay a $500 fine. He remained free on $50,000 bond. $500 fine. He was appealing. He was appealing that conviction at the time of his death and to show you how things have changed from back then he was allowed to go live in paris wow. <laughs> you know while yeah. he was convicted of that so yeah i've so. been i was mm-hmm. uh i've been to jim morrison's grave he's uh, yeah. outside of paris and mm-hmm. that's one of those grave sites where it's like that it's like a tourist destination now and everybody mm-hmm. you know he's... graffitis it and spray paints all this like graffiti and flowers and stuff well, all over the place it's pretty crazy he's like um He's like, well, I know that one of the interesting things is he died exactly two years after Brian Jones from mm-hmm. the Rolling Stones on, to the day afterwards. And I want to say he's buried in a part of Paris that's like considered to be a area where a lot of um, artists and writers. And I know like um, <laughs> Matt's going to laugh at this, but Balzac, Balzac. Yeah. yes, was there. <laughs> I got a like picture that. next to that. Yeah. No, I was like, hey, mm-hmm. get a picture next to Balzac. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll read to Balzac. <laughs> Well, he's also an incredible writer. The English guy he feels like I, I can overlook the uh, sexual innuendo and go into the, you know, it, it would have warmed Jim Morrison's heart to be, um, would have been to be buried, you know, near uh, Balzac. And it warms Matt's heart to be able to say Balzac in an article about Balzac. Jim Morrison. Yeah, so. With a name like Balzac, you've got to be a good writer. Yeah, exactly. even, people back, even people back in the day were like, he said Balzac. Yeah, exactly. Well, there you go. There's Except your in a uh, French accent. Ha ha. Ha ha, Balzac. We, we are most listened to the 18, by 20, 18 to 22 year old <laughs> demographic, and now you know why. So, so, yeah, go listen to this album. It was very good. I, I would recommend it, and I think yeah. it could turn your opinion on the doors if you're not a big fan. So, and it, and it was only, it was, I forgot to mention this, it's the second highest rated doors album on best ever albums. The, uh, the, the debut the album is still. Right. The high, is this yeah. is the highest one yep gotcha all right, all right i'm turning it over to, to josh right now okay so we're going to talk about van morrison and the opening montage you heard moon dance and now you're going to hear come running Last discussed on season one, episode 30 of Combing the Stacks, one of our famous uh, hate fests on Van Morrison. I think we all agreed we hated hated that album. Um, Do you want some this, numbers here, Josh? Yes, please. So we got 43 in 1970. Uh, I'm sorry, in the decade of the 70s, uh, number 43. Number eight in the year 1970, number 172 overall. And on Rolling Stones list, it comes in at the highest rated album, um, that we're covering tonight at 120. Okay. So this album came out 
uh, January 27th, 1970 in the UK and February 28th in the US. This is his third album overall and follow up and the follow up to Astral Weeks. Unlike Astral Weeks, which was not commercially successful, this was an immediate hit. It ended up reaching 29 on the Billboard charts, and you'll notice the change in style and tone on this album from Astral Weeks. Out with the abstract folk jazz garbage and in with the more R&B rock sound that he brings to this. <laughs> Editorial <laughs> comment. Really there. Feel, Josh, yeah. <laughs> he wrote and produced this album by himself. Um, he said that this was a conscious effort on his part to make something more relatable and appealing to the masses. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he, uh, that may have been, I think that was said after the fact. I don't know if that was his exact feeling at the time, but he said that he wanted to sell albums and, and sometimes you got to, uh, forego your artistic, uh, intentions to got to sell out Josh. So a little, at least a little bit, maybe, um, after astral weeks, he moved to a house in the Catskills near Woodstock with his wife, whose name is Janet planet, which I find hilarious mm. <laughs> in part because, um, Bob Dylan had recently done the same thing and he idolized Dylan. In fact, the other musicians mm, okay. on this album are from Woodstock itself. Um, and from that area and after the woodstock festival happened uh he left that area and moved moved elsewhere so i mm. guess do the influx of all the people that just decided to stay at the beginning of the recording of moon dance warner brothers had brought in session musicians from astral weeks to play on the album um, but morrison ended up getting rid of all of them and uh, bringing in his own people um, the people from Woodstock that I mentioned. He also told Warner Brothers that from here on out, he would be in charge of all of producing all of his albums himself. And um, as a result, that there's often frequent adding and removing of musicians depending on um, his needs. And also the Warner Brothers producers then taking a backseat to, to him producing. So um, I didn't see if they had a problem with that. I guess as long as you sell albums, that it's okay. Uh, Morrison said that uh, two horns and a rhythm section, those are the type of bands that I like best. And that's what he brought on this album. Um, the album was recorded at A&R Studios in New York from August through September of 1969. Going into it, he had uh, the song structure and arrangements in his head, and then he would flesh it out in the studio with the, with the help of the musicians. Um, this album you hear... Things like uh, a lot of horn arrangements and um, even uh, backup singers as well, which are which are both new to, um, you know, from Astral Weeks. Um, multiple critics um, sight hearing, you know, soul, Irish folk, jazz, swing and R&B um, that creates kind of this fusion of sound on this album. Um, a lot of the lyrics concern spiritual renewal and redemption, um, and that follows him through his decades-long career at this point. Um, There is differing opinions on what Jelly Roll means in the opening track. Um, It's either a reference to slang for sexual intercourse or the jazz pianist Jelly Roll Morton. And the album cover was shot by Elliot Landy, who also did the cover for Dylan's Nashville Skyline. So there's that that connection. Um, This album received critical acclaim across the board. Um, by all the critics. Robert Criscow, The Vo- Village Voice, gave it an A. Um, Greal Marcus, Lester Banks, and John Landau of Rolling Stone all said positive things about it. Uh, 
in terms of legacy, this is the album that defines Morrison the most, at least in his probably his early career. I mean, at this point, and I'll get to a bit, he has 42 albums out. He's still making Whoa. music. So, yeah, this is probably the one he's most known for and definitely got a lot of airplay in the in the 70s. Um, and some of these songs also became hits for other singers um, later on down the line, like Crazy Love and and uh, Into the Mystic. Um, this became a precursor for the a- AOR soft rock to come. And Spin called this album, quote, the Great White Soul album. Um, we don't cover any of his other albums after this. Um, so he continued to release albums every every year to two few years up to today. Um, interestingly enough, in 77, he had an album that was a collaboration with Dr. John titled Period of Transition. Um, I have no idea if that's good or not, but I thought that was interesting since we talked about John, uh, Dr. John on a bonus episode. And um, in November of 2019, he released his 41st album, uh, Three Chords and the Truth, and he's slated to have another album come out next month. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1993, and he was the first living artist not to attend um, the ceremony for to accept his award. Robbie Robertson accepted it on his behalf. Oh, was he like, wow. didn't believe in the uh, the spirit of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or what? Yeah, that's a good question. I might have to clean the stacks next week to find out. Yeah, because it's not like he had any band was. members he was fighting and he was like, I'm not performing with them. He just had to, maybe, was he fighting with himself and he just didn't want <laughs> to perform with himself maybe he was, anymore? Maybe he was fighting with this dummy on this ridiculous album cover. Oh, what that is I that? Found. I didn't see that. Josh <laughs> has got a Van Morrison picture with, and he's playing with a, a, a dummy and he's got his finger up to his lip as if telling it to shut up. Yeah, the album's called mm. The Prophet Speaks and for some reason, uh, older Van Morrison is, is speaking with a dummy telling him to be quiet. So that must, that must be really <laughs> profound. Makes sense. But, <laughs> mm. Anyway, um, I thought that was hilarious, and I wanted to make Matt laugh with a mm, dummy. It, and it doesn't take much. So, okay, what did you guys think of of Moon Dance, the uh, the follow up album? John, let's start with you. I've I've always liked this album. I actually really know this album well because I feel like every when I was a kid, I feel like everybody over the age of forty I knew owned Moon Dance mm-hmm. by Van Morrison. It's so weird because. Astral Weeks has kind of been imagined as the great Van Morrison work, right? And we were kind of all of the school of thought that uh, we were kind of lukewarm on it. But to me, this is what Van Morrison sounds like, along with Brown Eyed Girl, which was a single, Mm -hmm. um, Gloria, right, which was not Mm -hmm. on that album, and probably for me, Wild Night, um, both the original and also then it got covered later by Mellencamp and... uh, Michelle and Deggy Ocello, right? Where the yep. two who covered that. Yeah, I think so, they came yeah. out an album or two after this or something. Yeah. I and think. I think the reason that I I always said I, I like Van Morrison is because I like this album. There's just a lot of catchy songs. It's, um, you know, you've still got that Van Morrison voice that I kind of poked fun at in the Astral Weeks thing, but it's much more focused, kind of like how it is on Gloria and mm-hmm. Brown Eye Girl, right? Where it's that distinctive Van Morrison voice, but it's refined. Um, I like the arrangements on this album much more than I liked Astral Weeks' arrangements. I like the the songs and the lyrics much better on this. Um, and yeah, and if he was trying to write an album to be more accessible, he did everything that you would want to be. He reigned in, once again, much like The Doors, I think he reigned in some of the excesses and mm-hmm. he was able to 
you know, find a new sound that I think is a, a both a more commercially successful sound, but also a sound that I think I want to listen to again and again. And that's the funny, like I left Astral Weeks not wanting to listen to that album again ever. This album I listened to and I've listened to it, you know, 20 times. And I knew I was going to like it listening to it again here. And I did. And, you know, I'll expand on that down the road. But I think it just comes down to the arrangement, reining in a little bit of sort of the improv nature of the vocals. Because mm-hmm. um, Van Morrison has a nice voice. It's just when he goes into the, you know, la da 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 like for too yeah. long, you know, it's like it gets away from me a little bit. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll revisit with some other thoughts, but I'll, I'll give the floor to Matt right here. What'd you think? As much as I hated the other album, I loved this record. This is like a total 180. Um, and I I don't know if I was, maybe I was surprised. I wasn't surprised that I liked it, but I was surprised that I liked it this much. Um, it, mm. This is from start to finish. This is just a great record. Um, and I think the arrangements, the, the, the vocals, what you're saying, John, I, I, these are just better songs, right? This is, this is structure. This is, mm-hmm. um, these are, there are hooks in here. There's some great bass lines. There's some really, you know, um, like into the mystic and um, come running like that one, two punch of those two caravan before that, like it, it, it you know, it, it, it opens great with And It Stoned Me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's just really solid songs. There is there is a little sameness to it, but there's still enough variety here, um, you know, to keep like Moondance is kind of like a lounge singer kind of, you know, Sinatra-esque yeah. type song. I did know that song. That might have been, that might have been the only song on here I actually recognized um, when I listened to this. Um, but I just, yeah, I appreciated this so much more, um, and and just I I would say I love this album. Like it's not it's not even I like it. Like I would I would listen like you said, John. I would listen to this over and over again. Um, very accessible, and um, you know, uh, just uh, yeah, I. It doesn't surprise me that this is the record that kind of you know is what he's most well known for. Um, but it's uh, you know it's got great horns in it. You know it's even got some. I don't know. I was interested how you felt. You guys might feel about everyone. I kind of got like a little bit of a. There's like the flute going on. There's like oh, yeah. the lute. He loves I, I'm the like, flutes. I feel like I'm at a Renaissance festival with a bunch yes. of like wasn't, pixies dancing around a little bit. You know, wasn't I? I don't love that song, but yeah. wasn't Josh? You can help me out. Wasn't that in a like a I want to say like a Wes Anderson film? Hmm. I don't know. Uh, let me look. Okay, I, I could be wrong, but I that feel would like not surprise me. That yeah, would sound and I perfect. as I heard it, I was like, this is definitely in a Wes Anderson movie, or or something like it, because it. Um, and I remember listening to it originally back in my teenage years, and obviously it wasn't it wasn't connected to that for me at the time. But as I listened to it this time, I was like, wait, that's a. <laughs> What's the there's yeah, a God, there's was, an instrument. It was used in the final shot of Royal Tenenbaums, but did there not you appear go. on the soundtrack. So you must have heard it from the watching the movie. Yes, that's okay. Okay, now yeah. it makes sense. Yeah. So that's yeah, that's not surprising at all. Um, but it's yeah, it's um, I would say more so than even I'm, I was trying to think of other artists that we've covered where they had a record that like I really disliked and another yeah. record that I really liked and the Captain only, the Beefheart. Most, yeah, but but I right, and that was the other one that came up, but I would say that I liked this more than I liked um Safe as Milk. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um I w- I would say that this was a I I I really liked Safe as Milk. Um 
I would, I guess Astral Reeks is more listenable than, than, than Trout Mask Replica, but I just, the Astral Reeks to me was just because it was so highly regarded. It's on all these lists and I was expecting more. Um, you know, I, I, I just didn't get down with it, but this was great. This was, I, I would listen to this again and again. I mean, and this is, a lot of these songs seemed like Aretha Franklin would be doing these songs, mm-hmm. obviously a different voice, but it's a very similar, that soul, this is real blue eyed soul in this, you know, in this recording and it's, and it's great. It sounds great. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a kind of a little more mixed on this album. Um, I just think I'm not a huge Van Morrison fan. This That comparison to the AOR soft rock really kind of stuck with me through listening to really? that. And I didn't, and I didn't know that, you know, the f- first time I listened to it, but that is kind of the feeling I had. Um, I, I can, this album is by far better than Astral Weeks, to be clear. Um, I enjoyed listening to it more, but there's something about it that just, it's like he, he, I don't know. It's the songs were not catchy enough for me or the, um, he's trying to do too much maybe with all of the different, um, horns and saxophone backup singers and, um, kind of the uh, kind of the the lilting nature of of the songs they're pretty like mellow and um and what am i trying to say the i i guess the spirit the spiritual rejuvenation and um domestic kind of bliss vibe that that the album gives off just really didn't strike a chord with me um but i can on the other hand you can see the talent in him. He, I agree with John that he does have a good voice. I think this album is much more focused and structured. I can hear the R&B influences more. I think it's really a lot of what I don't like is when he tries to do like the jazz sort of thing or when the jazz sounds come through in it. Um, that really doesn't like it. Um, I don't like that about mm. it. Um that last song has a chorus that sounds like brown, brown eyed girl a little bit. It does. So I noticed he, that actually. Yes. I forgot about so it. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. He's plagiarizing himself. Yeah. Like <laughs> somebody should sue him. And then uh, he still get the onomatopoeia thing that he does that John likes to um, in, in, imitate. Mm-hmm. Um, that's in everyone. And, but he also reigns that in too. It's not like it was on Astral Weeks. So, well, again, it's uh, all couched in melodies. You know, it's all couch, couched in structure. Well, yeah, you know? and it's all um, it's all part of, like like Matt said, it's all part of the sound of the songs, and it fits as opposed to mm-hmm. almost like if Astral Weeks felt to me more like inaccessible jazz, which is kind of how I felt listening to that album. This sounds a lot more like Blue Eyed Soul. I'm yes, The definitely. AOR thing confuses me a little bit because I don't really hear anything AOR in this album. I think this is more similar to... It, ironically, I think this is more similar to like, um, you know, Dusty Springfield and, you yes, know, that type yes. of Blue Eyed Soul, mm-hmm. you know, in this than it is to AOR, which I think is much more... Um, tightly constructed right you know core chorus verse chorus verse you know guitar so yeah i did see one good quote that kind of sums up the album too it's a that it's a a horn and bass driven album versus Mm -hmm. a guitar um driven album and and that's noticeable the horns are are throughout and i think he i mean he knows what he wants to do by taking over the production i think he accomplished 
what he set out to do and he has a unique sound and his voice is unique there's not really anybody else that that sounds like him yeah and um i mean there must be fans because he's still making albums so he must be you know striking a chord with somebody well, he's still you playing know, concerts, Josh, because he yeah. doesn't. He, he's he's cool <laughs> yeah. with COVID. Yeah. Well. You know what's really interesting? Like every once in a while, when I'm listening to it, I'm curious to see what Spotify says is similar to it, and it's almost always right. I gotta give Spotify credit, but I have to say, like, I feel like they whiffed on this one. Like they were saying it's most similar, like James Taylor, Paul Simon, mm-hmm. Jackson mm-hmm. Brown, and I'm like, no, like no, like I I don't know. What do you guys think? Like I do not see that i i can kind of see that i think in terms of the kind of the vibe that he gives off i think it matches those other artists now in terms of production and and voice maybe not so much but well to me van morrison's derivative of black music you know what i mean like he Mm -hmm. clearly was influenced by it and loves it most to me those other three are like very white (laughs) <laughs> artists you know yeah. what i mean and we're gonna talk about simon and garfunkel and i'll expand on that a little bit not in a bad way but like and matt has mentioned like james taylor like zero edge right and mm-hmm. like you rarely say about any african-american music especially that made in the 60s and 70s boy you know that music has no edge yeah. you know like part of the experience and that's what i think is weird to me it's like I, I just I don't see that. But, you know, that's I think what is interesting, Josh, is that he doesn't really sound like anybody else. Like I said, the only thing I can really drive it to is people that were trying to do blue eyed soul like he or, mm-hmm. or artists that were doing legitimate soul, kind of like Matt referenced, like Aretha Franklin. Right. Like that's right. to me better. Paradise. Yeah, I would throw I would throw in her and like and like you said, Dusty Springfield and stuff like mm-hmm. that ahead of all of those other artists. The James Taylor particularly stands out as being no, I don't see that. Um, a little bit the other two, I see the Paul Simon a little bit, but um, yeah, there's a little I, bit I, of I, Fairport I, convention to this too, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, a that bit, Irish I mean, trap, like yeah. maybe not trap, but yeah. that folky sound because he's there's, there's he some is folky going yeah. on here. Yeah, yeah definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, he's from the same neck of the woods too. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it makes sense. Yeah, I think he gets a little bit. Some of his lyrics and kind of sounds are a little too mystical for me. Um, he he kind of gives off that vibe in this album. I'm not sure. Yeah, that that's maybe what doesn't work for me as well. Well, also. Into the Mystic, Moon Dance, those yeah. are sort of surrealistic songs. Mm-hmm. So I think you're on to something there. But yeah, definitely a marked improvement from oh God from Astral Weeks. I mean, like you said, it's a pretty much about face in terms it's of just it's just so appeal. accessible you know i could just see so many people putting this on and like for you know like from various musical backgrounds various you know genres that you like and mm-hmm. i think a lot of people would like this um very you know easy. you know i don't know how this just popped into my mind guys because we were talking about van morrison doesn't sound like anybody and i think i was there and then i said no i can think of somebody who sounds like van morrison who? And you know who it is? I'll do, do, sha na 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 na. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh. Adam Duritz. And if you think of that first Counting yeah. Crows album, yeah. that sounds like Moondance. That sound doesn't it? It sounds yeah. like he's doing Moondance. You know, like to some degree, Mr. Jones could be a like Long December. It has to be, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, because I was trying to think, like, who else has that, like, la, 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 sound? And I was like, for some reason, I thought of Mr. And I'm like, wait a second. I think I found somebody who's aping Van Morrison. And I don't ask think me about how that. that more. I mean, the voice, yes. The, the music. I don't know if Mr. Jones. But think of, like, The maybe, Long maybe. December. The Long December, right? Yeah. That sounds like a Van Morrison song, doesn't it? 
Yes, I think so. I think so too. And mm. hmm, so there you go. Here's an so. article that says Counting Crows downplays the band's Van Morrison vibe. That was, oh. that was from 1997. Adam I am freaking like Spotify. I am Spotify, dude. I don't. I think it was just because when Josh said that like onomatopoeia voice, I'm like, yeah. does anybody else do that? And that that's how I made the connection. So I'm yeah. very proud. <laughs> it sounds a little bit better than that, in fairness. Yeah. So. But so yeah, little, just a little. So there you go. If you like Counting Crows, you might like this Van Morrison album. Yeah, I think you would, to be quite honest, because yeah. it's, I mean, the Counting Crows had a lot of hits for a reason. You know what I mean? And and this was freaking massive, this album. Yeah. And should be, because I think it's a really good album. So it's going to be in probably my top 25% of albums in the 70s, and I love a lot of stuff in the 70s. Yeah, so. yeah I, I'd have to say, too, I don't know where it's going to fall, but it's it's certainly up there, the stuff that we've covered so far. Just the more I listen to it, I'm like, I'm, I just sat there and said, I love this album it's it's really good um so how happy uh, is that dude gonna be on youtube that was pissed at us for, for oh yeah, yeah for weeks. i should <laughs> i should tag him on this one when I, this is a youtube you clip and say like, All don't right. I'm, I'm gonna say you didn't direct us in this area but you're gonna like this so feel free to listen he maybe so. he hates this one maybe this is like the, one he's, the sellout album <laughs> he's the and contrary. he's like and then he's really got gonna like yeah. not gonna like our podcast no and our <laughs> luck we're screwed yeah exactly yeah. so yeah. all right all right so more uh, positive endorsements from you two, and then uh, neutral to mixed from me. It is hard one. to get you off to another a viewpoint of an artist you don't like, Josh. I've noticed it in terms of this. Once I am very structured it. in my life. So. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. So, Matt, you are covering the final album tonight the of the evening. Final album. Um, yeah, Simon or Garfunkel. I don't know what we heard in the opening montage. Nobody told we me. We heard Cecilia. Cecilia. Oh, Cecilia. Yes. All right. So you heard Cecilia in the opening montage, like I said. And um, now we're going to hear, God, we got to go with the boxer. In the clearing stands a boxer and a fighter by his trained and he carries the reminders of every glove that laid him down or cut him till he cried out. In his anger and his shame, I am leaving, I am leaving, but the fighter still remains. All right, so this album, uh, as far as the numbers go, uh, comes in at number 31 in the 1970s. This is Bridge Over Troubled Water, and it was ranked number three in 1970, 121 overall. And in Rolling Stones list, it came in at 172. Um, so if you, we, we have covered Simon and Garfunkel three other times before in, in season one, uh, episode 12, we covered Parsley, Sage, Ro Rosemary, and Time. Uh, in episode 16, we covered Sounds of Silence, and in number 19, we covered Bookends. Or, Matt, as I remember it, mm. Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Time, right? That was, that was one hell of an album cover, too, wasn't it? For that? It sure was. <laughs> and I learned that all of those were herbs, right? As yes. opposed to... Yes, yes. That, so was, that was the herb episode yes. for that. Yeah. So feel, feel free to go back to that one where John gets a under the learning tree <laughs> yeah so. the difference between spices and herbs we, we learned that there you go 
So this record was recorded uh, mostly in November of 1969, but there were a couple of tracks recorded in November of 1968. It was released on January 26, 1970, and it was produced by a gentleman by the name of Roy Haley, who I didn't really he didn't really come up in my research of other records, but apparently he had been working with the uh, with the group um, since the beginning, and he was really credited by them as being essentially the third member of the uh, of the group, uh, very not, instrumental in the uh, production of the album. Not our buddy TW, wasn't Tom no. Wilson? Like, Tom yeah, Wilson, he's... you know, what I'm finding out with Tom Wilson, he starts off with bands and then somehow he just doesn't work with them anymore. But I never find out why there's never like a a huge argument or anything like that i don't know what his deal was well, he, but he uh he was ladies man right that comes up a lot when you hear about tom wilson yeah, so yeah, maybe he was yeah. just he's, with the good with the good good he's, he's always you know, he's busy. always looking for the hot new sound <laughs> is that what they call it the hot new sound huh? yeah yeah so this is simon garfunkel's fifth and final studio album and it's been it's known for following a similar pattern to their previous record bookend so you're you're getting a much more produced album as i was mentioning before also incorporating a variety of different types of genres including rock r&b gospel jazz john's favorite world music and uh pop elements as well yes paul simon would mine that field quite a bit down the road he sure would and we're going to talk about that later it ain't the graceland that i'm used to (laughs) So this album, it's this album was massive. This album, it charted in many countries. It topped the charts in ten, including the United States and the United Kingdom. And it was at the Billboard, uh, it topped the bill, Billboard charts for ten weeks and stayed there, uh, stayed within the charts for eighty-five weeks. And in the UK, it it topped the charts for thirty-five weeks and spent two hundred and eighty-five weeks in the top one hundred from nineteen seventy to seventy-five. So this is like on Jesus, some, whoa! This is like a minor level of like uh, dark side of the. <laughs> moon here um yeah it was also the best-selling album in 1970 1971 and 1972 damn so i don't think many albums could ever say that they got the three the trifecta there but this was yeah this this no, was massive like led zeppelin four and like what dark side of the moon maybe so, yeah, yeah yeah that's the only the two wall, i can think of yeah the wall like yeah, yeah that's the ones i think of too yeah yeah thriller so it, Yep. Well, it, well, speaking of Thriller, this was CBS's best-selling album, uh, a record of all time, until Michael Jackson's Thriller, thriller came Dude, out. Dude, I am on a roll today, aren't I, man? You, you are. are. Or you're yeah. just cheating. You're looking at my notes. I'm somewhere. not at all. No, no. You're, ta- <laughs> not you're tapped into the collective unconscious. That's right. <laughs> um, so this record won two Grammys, one for Best Engineered Album and also Album of the Year. It is the. Uh, it's also sold over 25 million copies. Uh, at the time it was released, it was the best-selling album of all time, not just for CBS, but just of all time. So wow. it's su- it's since sunk down to like 45. Um, okay. So uh, the Titanic soundtrack came along and was one of the that knocked. <laughs> I, I like to think it's between like the Titanic soundtrack and like Drake. <laughs> if you are, if you guys ever do take a look at that, there is a list on Wikipedia, and uh, it's pretty interesting. The ones that come oh, now up. now I'm gonna have to look. Yeah, I have to look. Slippery when wet is on there, and then there's Shania like, Twain's got to be up there. I think. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it's uh, Boston, Boston's original album sold like a bajillion copies. I'll, oh, speaking, I'll look it up while Matt's doing that. Speaking yeah. of Boston, that's what I th- I was gonna say. That's when you say A O R. I, I always think of like Boston and Journey. I, I think that oh, AOR yeah. seems That's like an, expa- yep. an expansive, uh, you know, category. If it's also including like Blue-eyed yeah. Soul and soft rock, but um, I think of what you do, Matt, along with like the Speedwagon and you know. Yeah, sticks, I guess I just maybe I just don't understand. Air supply. Yeah, exactly. 
Okay, so uh, a little bit of history going to this record. So this is when Art Garfunkel starts going into the acting career. And Josh, mm. we got some movies that you should probably cover for uh, Josh's movie corner, because yeah, Art performance Garfunkel is on there. Yeah. Do you know what Do you know what movie Art Garfunkel was uh, was was starring in, or was was he was being filmed in while uh, Paul Simon was writing the songs to this album? Uh, is it Tulane Blacktop? I don't no. know. That's nope. James Taylor. Catch, <laughs> another softie. Uh, it was Catch-22, uh, okay. which was directed by Mike Nichols, Nichols who directed, yeah. the, directed The Graduate. So uh, initially, uh, Paul Simon was, was cast in, as a, for, in a role in that movie as well. But I guess, I don't know if it was Nichols or somebody, a producer of, of the movie, decided, you know what, we have way too many characters in this film. We need to, we need to make some cuts. And sadly, Paul Simon's character was cut, but Art Garfunkel's was not. So Garfunkel goes to film, and he goes into Mexico to film this adaptation of Catch-22 in the role of Captain Nately. And uh, it's supposed to go for three months, and it's I think it's January of 1969. Um, and instead of three months, that ends up filming for eight months. So um, so this is one of the things that comes between them because, and it's, 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 it's one of the things that really sticks in Simon's craws because, you know, he's he's obviously the talent like he's writing all the songs he's the he's the engine behind the, the mm -hmm. songs that we're hearing but art garfunkel's the taller guy he's apparently i see this all the time in the research i've done apparently art garfunkel got all kinds of girls and paul <laughs> simon was always jealous of that i asked sherry i was like have you ever gotten the hots for art garfunkel and she emphatically said no <laughs> so um but apparently lots of other girls disagreed with my wife and um and paul simon was always envious of art garfunkel so mm. So Garfunkel goes off to film this movie. Paul Simon gets cut. I don't. I've never seen Art Garfunkel act before, but I have seen Paul Simon in Saturday Night Live. The guy seems like he's a pretty good actor. Uh, but you know, he's got very good deadpan, very good comedic. Uh, you know, actor. Lauren Michaels certainly thinks so. Well, they're so. best buddies too. Yes, know? he's so, in Saturday Night uh, Live yeah. often. Yeah. So, um, so Paul Simon stays behind. He's kind of really not too happy about this but um but a couple of times garfunkel comes back from record from filming and they work on recording some of these songs um and so after um after the filming ended they, they did go on tour for a couple of months and they actually here's another film for you josh they collaborated with um actor and also filmmaker charles groden uh oh, to produce charles groden yeah, to pro they produced an hour-long special on CBS called Songs of America. So it was essentially an hour-long promo of the band of the group, uh, where they played several of their songs. They showed them in some concert performances and just behind the scenes. But what they also did was they incorporated several political, uh, anti-war, um, you know, tributes to people like like the, the Kennedy brothers and Martin Luther King. Uh, you know, within as a uh, with the backdrop of their music playing, and CBS wasn't a big fan of that. It was seen as too political, um, mm. so it only aired once. Uh, but they were able to do that and kind of get their music out there, and that's where people started seeing the the first performance of Bridge Over Troubled Water. Um, and uh, and you can actually see that I saw I watched it on. Um, it's actually it's actually um, coupled with another documentary about the making of bridge over troubled water on hmm. uh, it's called the harmony game and you can watch that another movie josh i'm throwing you all these josh's movie corners lot things, of, so you're gonna be busy to you got it so they the recording actually also included several members of the wrecking crew which we've talked about before so they they actually had worked with some of them before but this is the first time they got credit on a record uh this included hal bain on drums joe joe mm -hmm. osborne on bass 
and Larry Nectel on keyboards. That's some of the big hitters in the Wrecking Crew, too. Mm-hmm. Yep. And this is it's sim- it's interesting, John, how you were talking about the doors and certain you know where they would record certain things, like in a hallway or mm-hmm. by an elevator. This it was very much done in the same way. Uh, the producer here was you know just always constantly looking for strange places anywhere that that they could play and if he found the right you know he would walk around rooms and hallways and he would clap his hands and if he found the right echo he would say all right set the drums up here do this there and stuff so a lot of this record was was recorded in various places outside of a studio to get the perfect sound um so that they were looking for so this album actually was had mixed reviews some felt that it was overproduced that the production that they were going for was a little bit much um, and, uh, but overall, as obviously it was a huge selling record. I have some, some, you know, notes on what happened after the release of this album, but let's start here just as far as our, uh, overall opinions go. Josh, Bridge Over Troubled Water. What do you think? I loved it. This is their best album. I did not really know this album, although I knew a lot of the songs on it, but like every song, you know, we talked about this with the Beatles often, like every song on here is pretty pretty good pretty, pretty good yep <laughs> and it's one after the other there's really no there's really no filler on this and i can understand why this album sold a ton because mm-hmm. <laughs> there's just like so many good hits on it and that is i think permeated the culture because these songs you know come up in on the radio and, and in mu- movies and tv shows and all over the place and um, I don't find, I agree, well, I can understand the argument that it's overproduced, but I think it is this kind of culmination of what they were, what they were going for. I mean, we, we've kind of seen the progression, right, from just them and a guitar to, to becoming mm-hmm. more and more produced, and, and that's kind, this is kind of the apex of that. Um, I didn't have a problem with it. It reminded me, I like, I appreciated the variety. I liked all of the different um, instruments and and kind of uh, vocal uh, not tricks, but the way they integrate their voice into the songs. Like, you know, Cecilia is a classic. I love kind of the claps with the with the different like uh, I guess it's like bongos or something. And um, it, it that song is kind of reminiscent of kind of the Beach Boys, Brian Wilson. Uh, production where it's it's pretty layered but also mm-hmm. very catchy um i like the horns on keep the customer satisfied the um something like el corn el condor pasa and the boxer those are um really good too and and um so and then they have some slow ballads like only living boy in new york and bridge over troubled water which kind of is such a huge like giant ballad with or it's very orchestral and the strings and it's like booming and grandiose it's kind of a a weird way to start off the album but i mean that song's good it's probably my least favorite song on the album actually i think baby driver i think baby driver is my favorite song on this album or at least my favorite deep cut on this album um i just really appreciate the the pop oriented direction that they they turn to in this um, you still get the their harmonizing and, and their good vocal collaboration together, but I think it's just a great listen from top to bottom. Matt, you go next. Oh boy. <laughs> 
Have he's we ever done that ha- before? He's going to lay the hammer down. Oh, he is. Yeah. Um, I agree with most of what Josh said, uh, but Bridge Over Troubled Water being your least favorite song on this album is ridiculous. That is <laughs> that is their, that is the Simon and Garfunkel song. That song is I, massive. Not, <laughs> that song is like, is his, Garfunkel's vocal performance of that is insane. It's one of, it's, it's, it's one of the biggest, not only their biggest song, it's one of the biggest songs that we've covered in this entire run of this podcast. Mm-hmm. I mean, this mm-hmm. is one of those things that becomes, a, it's a universal type song, right? And it's yeah. just, um, and so even if you don't like it, you have to recognize it for the fact that like, it's just, it's it's done so well. And oh it's, yeah, it's, I'm with it's, you it's, on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Garfunkel's performance on that is great. I, I agree. This is this is their best album that we've covered so far. You mentioned the variety, Josh. There's variety all over the place here. There's a lot of different sounds going on. It's creative. It's mm-hmm. very catchy. Uh, I knew a lot of the songs on this from um, the Greatest Hits album that I had. But you've got stuff like um, that I that I had heard of before, but I totally forgot about, like baby driver like yeah. keep the customer satisfied mm-hmm. um you know uh and the only living boy in new york that's a that's a great song you know really yeah. r- r- really uh really solid song there um and then the songs i didn't really know like why don't you write me i like that that was kind of catchy um uh so long frank lloyd writes kind of like a bossa nova kind i of wrote thing. that in my notes too yeah yeah, yeah i got like some this... getz and gilberto in that yeah totally right so they're going there um song for the askings are really it's a, it's a short song, but it ends the album. It's this really, you know, nice, like, send-off from from Paul Simon. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing, too. You're getting a lot of, you know, you are hearing seeing a little bit of the breakup of the guys here because there's a lot more um, individual singing parts There's with some harmonies because earlier records, it was a lot more singing at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you've got more of them, you know, Simon taking the lead on, like, you know, much more so with Song for the Asking with The Only Living Boy in New York, Um you know, obviously Garfunkel doing Bridge Over Troubled Water um, and uh, So Long Frank Lloyd Wright. So they're kind of getting, they're separating a little bit there. Mm-hmm. But um, this to me was their, it, it was the most interesting. It was the catchiest. It was very upbeat. And um, I definitely enjoyed it more than um, than the other ones as overall whole. The Boxers also, that's another classic uh, yeah. song. And the way that builds, um, it's just, it's just so good. Paul Syme, I yeah, he's, he said he did all his best stuff or the, you know, the, the, the stuff that he's most well known for or some of his best stuff, you know, with Simon and Garfunkel. And this is to me is the pinnacle of that um, as an overall piece there's or overall album. Um, so yeah, big fan here. Um, I can't believe John's going to trash it, but that's, that's what we're <laughs> getting. That's what we're leading up to. So go ahead, John trash it. Yeah. This album's gross. I don't like this album. <laughs> it's uh, it's like gross. It's peak baby boomer. If baby boomers were personified as an album, I used to say it was Crosby, Stills and Nash, but like, mm-hmm. no, I was wrong. While so that bad. one is, this one is really like baby boomer. Now I want to start by saying this, this transcends this album, that. I don't, I disagree. This, okay. I, I, <laughs> I, I understand that my take is going to be different, but I have to kind of go. So let me start with what is undeniably, I can't say anything bad about. As Matt mentioned, and as I've said on every single Simon and Garfunkel album, Art Garfunkel's voice is incredible. It is. It's just amazing. And Matt's right. Like, you, it's beautiful. So can't take that away. It is immaculately produced in a soulless way, but it's immaculately produced. And that's a big piece of what I don't love about this album, which mm. I'll get to in a little bit. I especially think after liking bookends so much and then hearing this, I think this was a real departure from 
where I thought Simon and Garfunkel really got it right because I really like that album. Um, and and I, yeah. So there's that. So but you it's, feel it's, like the, you it's feel like act- this album's not as personal as Bookends. Do it's, you think it's, that pieces it? To me, it's hard. F- this is the type of thing where, like, I sometimes think that what I like in music and how I see the world, right, is different than a lot of other people. Because this clearly speaks to a lot of people and brings people great joy. I remember seeing when I was a kid how happy people who were baby boomer age people were when they would watch clips of like the Central Park, right? The thing that Uh they did in 1981. Mm -hmm. And it's just such a fond memory for folks. And I totally can appreciate that and understand that. Uh, I just, this, this doesn't speak to me at all. It's way, way sterile for me. It's overproduced. The lyrics are fine, but they're like schmaltzy and don't say, like they, they're, they, it's like people find them profound, but they're not profound. They're mm. just basic love songs, basic observational songs. Um, it's just, um, to, to me, this is the basic bitch of albums. It's just, it's just basic ideas, real good production from solid musicians. But I think I, the argument I've always had with Simon and Garfunkel is in the context of their peers, they are like the Stone Temple pilots to the, like, for me, to the Pearl Jam and, you know, of their era, right? You know what I mean? They exist and they sold tons of albums, but to me, they're a clear step down from like what the Beatles were doing and Bob Dylan was doing and stuff like that. They were taking chances and Simon and Garfunkel were... Now, some people will say rightfully, right, that they were the zeitgeist. They captured the zeitgeist. Probably right, you know, because they, they probably are right. I, though, did not live in 1970. I lived in a different era, and this doesn't speak to me at all. And that is what I'm saying. So I could never say this is a bad album. This is a technically very proficient album that has a bunch of songs that I can immediately understand why they're popular, but it does zero for me. I don't hate this album, but to me, it's like a good example of like an album that sells a lot, but, you know... You know, and I'm sure you can look at that list I have up of, you know, top 60 and you could be like, how could they sell so many albums? You know what I mean? This is that type of album for me. So yeah. what's the difference? What's the difference between a bad album and a gross album? <laughs> it's just I just I think it's gross, not because of anything they did or anything they did wrong. It's just become to me like backwards looking like this album to me. And I know you guys are going to disagree and it's a fair disagreement to me. This is another one of those albums that like it feels of 1970 and it like, yes, you can listen to it, but I feel like the people listening to it are thinking of like 1970 for the most part or wishing they lived in 1970, which is all fair, but like that's not the era that speaks to me. And I know that there's going to be people just hating my guts listening to this and that's okay. But it is. I'm sure there's people that could listen to the music I listened to in the 90s that speaks to me and say that doesn't come out of its time period. That's how I feel with this. I I think I was particularly disappointed because I like bookends so much. And actually, I liked um, multiple um, Simon and Garfunkel. I was lukewarm on Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Time. But then the other two albums after it, I was a fan of. And I thought they were trending in the right direction. I think this just sort of represented, I don't know. It just is just too commercial too it it didn't in any way strike me it it didn't hit me at all in my feels and i think i'm almost angry that people get so much profoundness out of this album because to me it's like this is just an album designed for people to buy it and it's like uh 
it's kind of like high-end elevator music to me is how i would describe oh. it okay Let, <laughs> let's pause let's oh, pause and this. i have bad takes <laughs> i don't i i kind of disagree i i don't get this i don't get the 1970s vibe um that that you are pointing out i think this in terms of just like well-crafted pop songs that's really all that that that, that is for me it's just really catchy um great music and but I do understand kind of your feeling about the lyrics, you know, kind of being schmaltzy or not having the emotion behind them that maybe you're looking for. What do you? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't say that I'm the. I, I know that I'm in the minority opinion here, and and as much as we joke around about, I'm not trying to. I, there are times where I'll try to persuade people to see it my way. I don't think I am because I understand that this album brings a lot of joy. I just I think it's weird for me because in all honesty, Matt, like you spent an entire episode ripping on James Taylor, and to me this is like James Taylor in many ways. It's hmm. just inoffensive, you know, um love songs, slice of life songs written to be consumed by as many people as possible, and it's just weird to me that like this is so transcendent to you and like James Taylor is like you hit you that but way. you're put you're putting everything under the same like okay anything that's kind of softer less it's not rocking it's yeah. like soft voices um you know kind of you know like acoustic guitar singer songwriter yeah. it's like it all falls under the same umbrella and but to me I'm, no. I'm talking like the difference between this is the actual songwriting the actual and I'm, when i say songwriting for me i'm talking musical right the the, the, the musicianship the uh the actual melody right uh, mm -hmm. the the production all that stuff their tone um not so much the lyrics so i'm not gonna you know I, i'm not gonna slam anybody for lyrics really so but to me this is just like when when i hear a song like the boxer or you know bridge over troubled water or you know stuff like cecilia uh it's it's so much better. It's to me, it's much more catchy. It's much it, it's it's much better songwriting than anything James Taylor ever did. It's just it, much more know. interesting too. Yeah, and it's it's more energetic. It's 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 more fun. And I I guess a couple of things. I I'm strict. I'm struck by like how this album to you, John, is like this. It's like the ultimate baby boomer kind of thing. I get Simon and Garfunkel. I, I do understand what you're saying about them and like Crosby, Stills and Nash. There are some certain acts and artists that are kind of typical of like the main acts that baby boomers loved and stuff. But like how this is like that's hitting so hard for you there, but Sounds of Silence didn't and Bookends didn't. Yeah. I, I don't get that. I'm not seeing a huge stark difference between those albums that you liked at least a little bit and Bookends that you liked a lot and this. Um and I would also say that, like the sparse like, production, man, is is I think the biggest difference. I mean, this is like produced. Bookends was like, not sparsely produced, though. Like that, I, I that's to me. I, is, like, I think the, it was. There's no wrecking crew on Bookends. There's no like massive amounts of session players on Bookends. There's a lot more breathing room on Bookends for the songs to be there. I felt like this album was almost like Phil Spectory produced, Matt, which is another reason I'm baffled because this to me sounds like the type of production that Phil Spectory used to do that you hated on all the Wall of Sound albums. So and I'm not saying I'm right, I'm just, it's weird to me mm -hmm. that you don't see any, like I see where you're saying, I don't see, John, how you see these, these similarity and there's some fairness to what you're saying, but I think it's equally weird that you don't see some of like those comparisons because- well this is well, like ed edgeless, edgeless, not in a bad way, but this is like not super edgy, 
you know, no. white guy rock. But and I don't that, like, and that's it's okay. Not, it's better than James Taylor, I, I'll say, but it's not all that different. But James Simon Taylor. and Garfunkel's never been edgy. That's no different. No, and it doesn't than have to be. Albums. I mean, and I, I know, I, I know, I slammed James Taylor because he wasn't edgy. But I also slammed James. Like you don't have to be edgy, but you have to have better songs, which is why I, th- I like Jackson Brown better. He's got better songs, and he's got no edge. And Simon and Garfunkel don't either, but they, they have much better written songs. The, uh, and actually, the so I, I, I don't hear the same wall of sound this wall of sound i didn't like it's not i the thing i hated about it was it was so echoey and everything was out front in the same in the same to the same level right Mm -hmm. this that's not here Uh, you know there's a lot of production going on there's a lot of musicianship there's orchestrations and and the and the the wrecking crew and stuff but i'm picking out different things there's fluctuations and variations the 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 stuff that we heard with the wall of sound i'm not hearing that as much it's all the same and that to me i don't like as much and the wrecking crew was on bookends there that was a really meticulously produced album um i don't think the maybe the orchestration wasn't there as much but they were definitely playing with the wrecking crew at, at those times as well um and i guess the other thing too is like if if part of the knock of this is the fact that like it's you know people listen to this trying to get back to a certain time i mean that the, a lot of the rock like when i hear Jimi hendrix and you hear a lot of other like you know ro- music from the 60s a lot of that does it sounds very much of its time and, and people listening to it going back to when music was good right when 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 people played their instruments and all this other stuff um and it's just it's interesting that like this stands out to you as being the one that's like ah i can't really you know it's almost too baby boomery um and i i I just don't i see that happening with a lot of other artists that we've covered as well um and and i don't know to me at the end of the day it's just i like the songs you know and and even if it sounds like it's from the 60s or if it sounds like from yesterday if i like the songs i'm gonna like the album yeah, and I mean, you your opinion carries because it sold twenty seven million copies, man. <laughs> so it's like I I am fully in the front in saying that I have a contrarian, and I'm not being contrarian just to be contrarian. I uh-huh. oh, no, feel I that I feel there isn't much difference between all four Simon and Garfunkel albums. I feel they're all the same. So maybe it's not so much that I dislike Bridge. I'm gonna probably evaluate Bridge Over Troubled Water at about the same points that I did the other four Simon and Garfunkel mm-hmm. albums. And that's what's weird to me about this one. It's like um, all the uh, to me, what they did was they just you know made a lot more production on this. Mm-hmm. I would uh, my argument would be overproduced this album quite a bit. But I get if like the production is what made it cleaner, you know what I mean, and more appealing to the ear, which I think is what might be happening right here. And that's a fair point. I just think that what it did was it. Um, I don't know. It just there's not any part of me that wants to connect to this album again Mm -hmm. and there was like on bookends for example like hazy shade of winter and mrs robinson and stuff i just those songs connected a little bit more with me um it was they were not they were clever but they weren't like it's hard to explain it just what for whatever reason that album just connected Mm. with me more i felt like this was more of just a um super polished and i don't always love super polished but i i understand that that's a personal preference for Mm -hmm. my taste yeah do you feel it's it's more kind of like just like too bubblegummy and and catering to the masses no because i don't what you're getting at i mean the idea i don't have anything against people that sell a lot of albums and stuff and bubblegummy is when you don't have anything to say. I don't think these guys don't have anything to say. I mean, by all accounts, they're both very smart guys, and their lyrics are not bad. They just, um, they, 
maybe this is what I'm trying to get at. They don't necessarily reflect an experience that I connect with. They represent sort of a worldview that while pleasant, you know what I mean? And pleasant for a lot of people, I need more in my rock, if okay. that makes sense. Even somebody like a Cat Stevens gave me... I don't like a song like uh, "Wild World," right? I think yeah. is is just a more profound love song to me than anything that Simon and Garfunkel writes. Because Simon and Garfunkel kind of get into like, to me, sort of a vanilla type of love. It's I doubt I have no doubt that it's just as much profound to them as anybody else. But the nuance of a song like "Wild World" by Cat Stevens and the stripped down nature of how that was sung spoke more to me. If that makes sense, does that help to understand a little bit? Like, I think you... so. It seems yeah. like Cat Stevens kind of puts more of himself into his songs. Maybe is that what you're? But I can't say that Simon and Garfunkel don't. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I, I just, I just, I think it's this falls down to one where it is just personal preference. It isn't. Yeah. I'm not criticizing this on the merits of the music. I'm sort of betraying. I'm saying my biases up front, and I'm saying. This is an album that I'm going mm -hmm. to rank score-wise better than I enjoyed it because I'm going to appreciate the artistic merit of it. And so it will probably end up with a score. If you were to look at my score, you'll be like, oh, John couldn't hate this album so much if he hated this album so much with the score he got. I'm just kind of saying to me um, – there's a there's a disconnect, you know, on this. Yeah. And and when you guys were like, "This is the great," I'm like, I listened to Moon Dance, and I'm like, Moon Dance to me was a much much better album than this, much much better. And like, I don't know, I can't really explain it. This so. is just your Otis Redding album, John. Maybe, yeah. I mean, yeah. I I mean, I I'm sure that that people will react to this in the same way they did when Matt was like, "I just don't feel Otis Redding." And people are like, "You got to be freaking kidding me!" And I get it. I think the only difference is. I like a lot of Simon and Garfunkel and I'm on the record saying that and I don't dislike this album. I get completely where it is and you know I the Cecilia and the Boxer and Bridge Over Trouble I mean these are songs that like I could probably sing you you know all the lyrics to it cuz I've heard them so often. So I think I don't know. It I guess I was just I was just sort of thrown off when you first, you're like this album's gross. I was like, "Whoa, <laughs> <Yeah>. okay." <laughs> It's but. just it's it's you know what's gross about it and it's not fair to Simon and Garfunkel. To me this album and this might be where it's unfair a little bit. To me this album represents like boomer culture but like boomer culture has its positives, you know what I mean? But boomer culture also has its like, you know, hmm. stuff that I don't connect with. And like this is like, you know, Volvo liberal, you know, I, I'm a white guy who cares about issues, but I actually don't know anybody besides other white guys who are college educated. Like, this is peak that person. You know what I mean? Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Water. And I think unfairly to them, I sort of stereotype this as sort of like music for white people who care, but don't care enough to listen to like music, like like Sly and the Family Stone would be a little bit too edgy for them. You know what I mean? Like because yeah. you know, wink, wink, nod, nod. And you know that's not fair to Simon and Garfunkel. Um, I think I also like when Simon discovered like African music later. I kind of always roll my eyes because it's like, oh, like now there's African. Now I discovered it seven years after Peter Gabriel did. But hey, like I, you know, mm -hmm. so yeah. <laughs> so it's so it's as much about the image and and the, uh, the I the, think the it representation is representation and, and the aura mm -hmm. of Simon Garfunkel as much as more so probably yeah. than the music. 
And that is and that is why I think that my review of this is to some degree unfair. And I'm trying to be very honest and uh, uh, like articulate well, about that. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and I think and you guys did a very good job of explaining the artistic merits of this album. And I think that they hold and I can't disagree with them. Well, I think it's also fair to say that like there are going to be artists and musicians that you just don't get right that it's like becomes Mm -hmm. this thing where it's like i don't know what people are hearing i think that we've certainly talked about artists there before and i know and i've been there too you you kind of alluded to this a little bit too john it's like once you once you kind of make up your mind about something like that and then i know for me anyway and then i hear all these other people tell me how great something is i'm gonna dislike it even more right because it's like what are you talking about it's not that great shut up right that type of thing so i definitely have gotten there myself um you know i think i'm usually pretty good though at stepping out of that like i really try to push myself in that and give it and i think there's examples i can give you during this run um yeah, I mean, it's also I, different when it's a massive album like this that you've heard, yeah, many many times over the years. It's I think what, to it also world. didn't help that it was up against both of these albums I've heard a bunch of times, and I listened to the Van Morrison album, and it was like, ooh, this is I, I like this, I like going back to this, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then I listened to this Doors album, and I'm like, ooh, you know, the Doors you know, really kind of were put it together. And then I listened to Simon and Garfunkel. I'm like, oh, it's Simon and Garfunkel. You know what I mean? Like, it's the same. Like, and I think I was hoping to be like blown away because I'm like, all right, I liked bookends more. There's stuff. And I think when I listened to it, it was just like, okay, here's like the stuff. I wonder if this is going to happen to me with Led Zeppelin too, guys. Because like, you know my take on Led Zeppelin, right? And I've been... Mm Pretty, you know, one and two I loved here, and then three I was ah, lukewarm on. I know I like four when we get there, but I wonder if I'm going to be able to revisit that or if I'm going to go back to, oh, okay, this is Led Zeppelin, and I know how I feel about Led Zeppelin. You know what I mean? I don't know. And I felt like this was the first time I was like, oh, this is Simon and Garfunkel, Mm -hmm. and it's Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, and that's all I'm kind of getting at. So I don't want to – take over this segment because I know you guys really like this. And I also know that I'm the minority opinion here. So I kind of want you guys to have the segment at the end so you can tell the listeners why this kidding? is a great this, album. This is podcast yeah. gold, baby. This is kind, no, this is kind of what <laughs> happened with the, with the Otis Redding thing. Cause it totally talked we talked about that, but that's all right. Um, no, are I you just, guys shocked that I didn't like this album I'm, or I'm that was sh- lukewarm on it? I'm not sh- You know what? Maybe a little bit only. Well, initially I thought you were going to be panning the other records much more. So mm-hmm. when we first started covering them, you're like, actually, I kind of like this. And then mm-hmm. you, you kind of liked all of them. Yeah. And so I figured that it would go along the same way. So then when you were like, it's gross, like I didn't like this at all. I was like, whoa, okay. I was like, how is this? Because to me, this record is not, it's not deviating all that much, right? Yeah. There's deviation, but it's still That's Simon a fair point. Funkle, that's a fair you know? point. So, yep. it's, so you, it was a little bit of entrapment, John. I think that that's what it was. Yeah. You, gotcha. it's, like, it's, you, you laid out the bait and then you pulled it away. Yeah, I'm not shocked. It seemed like you were searching for something that was missing in the other albums and maybe this album would have had it but i'm not like i mean you laid out your case i think it's valid i think i just want my cultural zeitgeist to feel feel as much like a cultural zeitgeist and i think whether it be this album or crosby stills and nash right i just i don't get the zeitgeist in that as much as i get it even from like the initial doors album uh you know uh sergeant pepper Mm -hmm. um I'm trying to think of like other albums that like mm. jump out, you know, the, the zeitgeist out, even the Dylan albums that I was lukewarm on, you know what I mean? Like at no point that I'd be like, Oh, I didn't get why this was a zeitgeist. You know what I mean? This just struck me as an album that lots of people like to listen to on the radio. 
and yep. you know buy the album up and that's totally okay you know what i mean but like i think maybe some of it too is i was it doesn't capture the zeitgeist for me it's just at the end of the day some slice of life life stuff and i think maybe the bias is for an album that sold 27 million copies i either expect it to be like well, maybe, you know, you mentioned like Come On Over by Shania Twain, Josh. Like yeah. that certainly is his good album. But yeah, that was another one that people like to put on a CD and sing to in the yep. car, you know. And I, this is a better album than that and certainly a higher to me end of, and that's not knocking Shania Twain, but there's more to me craft in this. But at the end of the day, it's kind of the same thing, you know. I mean, the best, uh, yeah, the best selling albums of their respective decades, and this goes for movies too, are often not the albums that end up being the zeitgeist albums or the movies that are remembered so i think that's something that we only can kind of look at in retrospect i think or looking back it's not something that yeah. you can kind of pinpoint in the moment when you're in it because what what are the zeitgeist albums of 2020 or 2021 i mean we're not going to know that until like five years down the line maybe 10 years or something mm-hmm. well all i know is i find this album catchy as hell and a lot mm-hmm. of fun and uh i'd say go freaking listen to it yeah and it's got it's got like two of the biggest songs, you know, of the. It's, I mean, it's technically a '70s album, but it's. I mean, it is. There's there's they're still very much '60s. Um, mm-hmm. And when you're looking, I mean, they're just it's massive hits, and it's not. They're great songs too, I, as far as I'm concerned, right? Um, at least musically. Um, so I know pe- I know a lot of people love Paul Simon as a lyricist. Um, I'm not gonna. I don't really feel strongly one way or the other about him so it's interesting that because i've heard people say like how great he is and compared there's been comparisons to someone like dylan in terms of his lyricism so um but i mean can, 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 you're not a lyrics guy <laughs> but like you can't see that that's absurd kind of yeah like even i can see that no i said i, I don't i said <laughs> no dylan okay yeah. yes i can see it's that, nothing but like, against I, but paul simon he's fine right. but like once again i just don't see it you know what i mean i don't see it yeah yeah, yeah. um so okay. I have a I have a couple of more just to finish up on them. So they actually oh, sure. they performed a little bit in 1970 after the release of the record, um, and they they did their uh, final performance in July of 1970, and uh, they basically just were in a parking lot, shook shook hands, and went their separate ways. And they didn't officially break up, but they kind of knew the writing was on the wall. But it was it had been brewing for a while. Uh, like I said, you know Simon was jealous of Garfunkel for you know being taller, that being the singer. A lot of people actually thought Garfunkel was the you know, kind of the, the 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 main main guy in the band because he was up front with the voice. Um, hmm. uh, so, and an art Garfunkel obviously was jealous of Paul Simon's you know writing and he knowing that he was the real talent. So there was a lot of bickering between the two guys um, for and it and it just carried on for many years. They. Um, you know they did would would play every you know get together like john said they reunited about 10 years later for the concert in new york in central park and then they reunited again like it's almost like every 10 years they got back together um i actually saw them in 2003 in dc they uh, they had the everly brothers along with them so they played a bunch of songs with the everly brothers now, so there's um, some dudes so who that can was sing. pretty cool yeah they, they they were they all sounded they all sounded great um yeah and uh, that was it that was it speak, speaking of a baby boomer moment john i distinctly remember at that show kind of being at our seats and the show was going to start, I don't know, seven or eight o'clock or whatever. And it's like seven minutes after eight o'clock or whatever. And there's a dude like six rows ahead of me that's in his, you know, probably in his 60s or whatever. And he was, what's going on here? He's like outwardly like upset <laughs> that they weren't starting right on the on the dot. So, was uh, was this after he said, 
Was this after he said, now this is what music is. This (laughs) is what music is. That that was probably the previous 10 minutes. I'm sure that that came later. And I will say too, I I always hate that too. And I know that you'll hear that that a lot of baby boomers that I've talked to before. um, And actually people my age too, I know. I mean, I think that that's just what happens. A lot of people, they get older and they say, this is when music was real. And that is always like off-putting you know, particularly the younger yeah. generation. So um, I do agree with you on that. So, but they did, they, they, they reunited a bunch of times. Um, they were inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame in 1990. And um, they've actually, I think I've, I, I read that their, their relationship might be as strained now as it ever was. Um, they were supposed to, you know, uh, reunite for some shows several years ago, but, um, and Art Garfunkel was like, yeah, my voice is fine. No problem. And they go and do a performance at jazz fest. And it was clear that his voice was not fine. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they did not sound good. And Paul Simon was, was livid that Garfunkel wasn't being honest with them about the quality of his voice and stuff. So, um, they, uh, I, I don't expect that they would ever reunite again. This is kind of getting some Morrissey Smith's level, you know, <laughs> uh, animosity yeah. towards each other, which is sad, um, you know, because they were like, you know, they were childhood friends and, you know, started hanging out like in fourth grade and stuff. And, uh, you know, I, as far as I'm concerned, made a lot of great music and now they just, they hate each other. So um, it's unfortunate. Well, they'll join, let's see, CCR. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Simon Garfunkel, the Smiths. I'm trying to think of like famous bands that can't stand each other. The Beatles uh, to some degree. Yeah, yeah, New Order. I heard that they hate each New other or, too. Yeah. Guys, yeah. Well, do you? So you were correct that the Simon and Garfunkel album is the 45th best-selling album of all time. Mm. There are there are a grand total of 68 albums that have sold 20 million copies or more. So Simon and Garfunkel is 45. Would you like to hear the five albums <laughs> before it or the other albums that sold 25 million copies? How, what do you guys want to hear in yeah. terms of? Let's, yeah, let's, hear, so, let's hear what's on the front and the back end. Yeah. So the, so the other albums that have sold 25 million copies are Britney Spears, Baby One More Time, <laughs> Bob Marley and the Wailers, Legend, Carol King Tapestry, which we're going to be covering very shortly. Yeah, we are. Yep. Queen's Greatest Hits, Phil Collins, No Jacket Required, wow. U2, The Joshua Tree, Madonna, True Blue, Prince and the Revolution, Purple Rain, and George Michael, Faith. And if you want to know, for, yep. cu- for curiosity's sake, if you want to know the albums that were just above it with 26 million albums, Eric Clapton, Unplugged, Nora Jones, Come Away With Me, Eminem, the Eminem show, and Lincoln Park, the hybrid theory. Wow. And under and underneath at 23 million, there were three albums. The Spice Girls, Spice, Ace of Bass, Happy Nation, The Sign, and Celine Dion, All the Way, A Decade of Song. So and there you go. And Simon and Garfunkel will. has by far had the most amount of time on the charts to be yes. in the same realm as a lot of those 80s and 90s artists. Wow, yeah. Yep. And, and just wow. to finish this segment off, just for a late, late clean the stacks, there are nine albums that sold more than 40 million copies. In reverse order, number nine is Josh, Shania Twain, Come On Over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Eight is Fleetwood Mac, Rumors. Yeah. Seven is Various Artists, Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Six is The Eagles' Greatest Hits. Five is Whitney Houston and Various Artists, The Bodyguard soundtrack. Four is Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. 
three is Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell, which I know we'll cover. <laughs> Forgot about that one. Two is ACDC, Back in Black, and number one is Michael Jackson, Thriller. With is a, it? by the way, ACDC and Meatloaf sold fifty million. Yeah. Michael Jackson, Thriller sold sixty-six million. So it is a yeah. I was just about to say, million. isn't he? Blow, it's like a Babe Ruth like home run thing. He's just yeah. not only is he in first, they're just blowing everybody else away. Well, it can't be Babe Ruth because he doesn't hold the single season yeah. or the career anymore. <laughs> no, Matt. but so when he, I'm, I'm sorry, Bonds he, on steroids. Yeah. <laughs> no, when he did, when Babe Ruth hit sixty, yes, like the next yeah, guy hit yeah. like thirty or something. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's a huge thing. So there you go. There's a little bit of cleaning the stack early so interesting very yep. interesting don't buy your albums just based on that <laughs> and don't That'd be a weird yeah. me- record collection <laughs> it would actually be a kind of sweet record collection too in some ways so uh it would give you a lot of stuff and don't by the way make your recommendation i'm gonna actually bury myself here don't make your recommendation on whether to listen simon and garfunkel bridge of over troubled water on my take my take is very personal and i think that matt and josh's is probably a fairer take and you should definitely listen to this album because it is um a, a slice of the music seed that you have to listen to to understand like 1970 i mean you should never listen to any of our takes and take that as a way to you should listen to the album regardless of our takes. that was a that was, was a very no, diplomatic <laughs> last sentiment from this person oh, that's yeah. always right josh that was well that was nice most of my takes are right but this is one where <laughs> I, I am willing to say that maybe this one is not as right on that one there might be some biases okay. All right. So next week is a cold listen hot take, guys. We are going to do seven albums. Interestingly enough, these seven albums actually come in at 40 minutes less than the six albums we listened to last week. So go figure on that one. But it is a veritable cornucopia of albums, guys. You ready to hear what we're covering? We are covering James Brown for the second time, Sex Machine, Dolly Parton for the first time, Coat of Many Colors, Loretta Lynn, first time, Coal Miner's Daughter, Serge Gainsbourg, History de Melody Nelson is going to be covered next week. Serge Serge Gainsbourg. Gainsbourg, Yep. Who Josh, I'm sure, can give some context on, right? Because the film. Yep. And he's got a daughter that acts as well. Correct. Janis Joplin Pearl, so our sec- kind of second visit because we did Big Brother and the Holding Company. Faust, we're going to have some kraut rock, guys. Faust, self-titled, oh, nice. 1971. And Harry Nielsen, Nielsen Schmielsen, friend of the Beatles and songwriter for the Monkees, Harry Nielsen. You guys excited about it? A lot of singer-songwriters in that group. Yeah, a lot of variety, though. A lot of, mm-hmm. of first-timers. I like that. So, so it yeah, will be good. quite quite the cornucopia there any final think, thoughts i don't think i've heard any of those albums really so that's good. i don't think i have either yeah i was only familiar with one of those seven albums before we went into this so it's been an interesting listen as i've started to dig into those so should be some hot scorching takes <laughs> the next time you <laughs> listen to us and then when we come back after cold listen hot take we'll go back into um albums again with uh josh doing george harrison all things must pass all two hours and five minutes of it um matt will be doing paul and linda mccartney ram and I will be doing, for the fourth time, I believe, the Rolling Stones' Sticky Fingers. We did Let It Bleed, Beggar's Banquet, and Aftermath. So, yeah, fourth time. Gotcha. Nice. All right. So, for Matt and Josh, this is John wishing you a good night and a better tomorrow. We'll see you next week for Cold Listen Hot Take number two. The Coming to Stacks podcast is hosted by John, Josh, and Matt, who thank you, as always, for listening to the show. 
We'd like to thank our podcast host, Anchor, for hosting our full archive of shows. We'd also like to thank CleanFeed for providing our audio and Audacity for providing the editing software we use for the creation of the show. Combing the Stacks can be found on the following 10 platforms and counting. Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Spotify, and Verbal. Viewer feedback can be sent to combingthestacks at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at CombingThe, and on YouTube by searching for Combing the Stacks and throwing us a follow. A website is coming on May 1st, 2021, and we'll make sure to let you know where to go.